Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello there, this is John Hindorf and it's just after 8 o'clock in the UK. This is Midweek Motorsports Series 10, episode 13. Uh, no Tim this week, he's out uh, on assignment. So that means I've immediately got to bring in our Formula 1 correspondent who can't be with me tonight, he's at a secret location as well. And say, uh, on a packed programme tonight, Nick, we have what? All the usual features, John. Excellent. Well rehearsed. That well, has taken, what, what we got Series 10, I was in from Series 2, so only eight years for you to get that right. Yes, excellent <laughs> stuff. Excellent stuff. Welcome back to the programme. You weren't around uh, last uh, last week. Um, surprisingly few uh, apologies for absence uh, this week, so I think we'll get... Well, that was very funny last week. I enjoyed that from Sebring. Uh, and with apologies... Uh, to I was here last week, because I was... I was, I was found it very hard. I was, on the, I was actually on a telephone. You were on a telephone. You probably didn't hear me. It was going through a, a massive combination of strangeness, a combination of 1950s technology with the, with the 2015. And I, I wasn't think quite sure what you were saying most of the time, if I'm honest. I did. Uh, well, that's speak to my <laughs> wife about that. She has exactly the same problem. I did think in any moment now in a 1970 uh, World Cup from Brazil type of way you were about to go... And Jarvis Lee now scores 1-0. Um, um, yeah, no, I was, I was going to do I was going to go my walk. And into the lead goes yeah, yeah. Nelson PK. Yes. In a, down a telephone type of way. Uh, anyway, as he, as uh, Nick has said in a pack programme tonight, we have loads of stuff. Uh, and uh, we'll crack on uh, with a bit of news to start with. So let's play the news jingle. <laughs> All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. So, top story this week then, Nick. Well, I'm I'm guessing the top story is John probably was wrong. Yes, yes. But we're not certain until Friday morning. Yes, well, he's travelled, hasn't he? He has travelled. And we're talking, of course, about fellow B.A.D., fellow B.A.D., uh, Fernando Alonso. Oh, sorry, I'm going to stop you right there. Can I say I was I was surprised, but pleased you kept the beard. Yeah. You I- told me you were losing the beard because your TV commitments. I thought it was a bit strange, uh, but no. You, uh, my my I, American American together. my American TV producers said that they had no issue with the beard, so the beard has stayed. Obviously, you're not on the Walt Disney Channel then. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Moving right along before we dig ourselves into a huge <laughs> amount of trouble. Uh, so, uh, as far as we're aware, then, mm-hmm. uh, the well, we know he's travelling. So yes. Alonso is is heading to Malaysia 
Uh, he, we know he's been to the simulator. Uh, we don't he's know what fit. He's been looking fitty things. Yeah, most departing. Is that in front of the phone? Right, turn the music off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not uh, playing. Nineteen ninety-five. Playing uh, Doom, whatever it is. Young people play today. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So Alonso then is off to Malaysia and may or may not get in the car. When will we actually find out? I think he's having the actual medical, final medical test on Thursday. The latest it'll be is Friday morning, obviously, but we'll know by Friday. Um, the interesting thing is, there's two interesting things. First of all, he's remembered suddenly that there was a problem in the car before the accident. That's handy, isn't it? Yes. The steering... Wait, I went to the accident because, yeah, it's a bit too early. The steering... Oh, actually. The steering went a bit heavy. He's Italian now because I can't do Spanish. The steering <laughs> went a bit heavy. Which is it? Why? Why that hasn't come to light in the past? Was it four weeks now? It's been five weeks. He's been trundling on. You know, he remembered the steering, and they've decided because he said the steering was a bit heavy to put an extra sensor on the steering, a heaviness sensor. Right. Um, I also received a private message from one of the members of the collective who doesn't want to be named, and he said that he had suffered from a severe concussion, including bruising on the brain. Yep. And he had never been for the sort of tests that they were describing that Fernando was going for in Cambridge. Right. In Oxford. I still think, and I am pretty, I'm as convinced you can be within the lack of information, I think Fernando had an episode in the car. Right. I am pretty convinced something happened. Not, not necessarily. So that, you know, it goes. Uh, yeah, we've heard about heart arrhythmias. He doesn't have that serious. It could just be he had food poisoning and he mm-hmm. went lightheaded. It could just be, you know, he had a, uh, you know, he, he was ill that day. But I think that what went wrong was he, at best, went a bit woozy. At worst, passed out. Right. Um. And that. And and that is why they are doing these medical tests based around the concussion. That's why he was in for three days in the first place. What was a minor concussion? Um, have we I, been able to find out? Um, is there any way that we might find out that for sure? They, they don't no. monitor the drivers in the cars, do they? No, and I, and I don't think, you know, it's only, you know, let's be honest about this. You know, there is an official line from McLaren, and that's the same official line, uh, company which produced the one puff Montoya hurt himself playing tennis line. Um, and then it's been so badly communicated and, 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 you know, Rondo is saying he wasn't concussed and he was concussed. And then, yeah, you know, it, it, you kind of think there's more to it. And the fact that they were going to get back in the car again until they found out that the car, that they weren't sure what's going on. Cause they obviously didn't see much damage to it. My feeling is that there was something wrong medically with Fernando, as I said, not necessarily serious, not necessarily career ending, just at that particular time. And that's what caused, uh, that's what was at least played into the hands to cause some of the accident also caused this, this massive concern. Mm. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an idea, yeah? yeah? Just one thing you might have had. What if you had a blood clot? Yes. These guys fly all over the place, yes. no thrombosis, three days in for observation, they've stuck him on blood thinning drugs, they now want to have a look again before he flies a long haul flight to Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And then they'll test him when he gets back. You know uh, that could well have happened. Ah. I let me right say 
This is 100% subjective. I am working on no extra knowledge than anyone else has, but I'm putting the two and two together. I think I'm getting quite close to four. Because right. if it had been a simple concussion, they'd be much, you know, yes, he came out, he was concussed, it was quite bad, despite what it looked like, he needs a month off. But the way the news leaked out in dibs and dabs, and concussion, of course, is something which is, uh, you know, is you know, explainable away. Once the period of recovery is gone, that's fine. There's no future repercussions. No one goes inquiring about other elements of health. Anything else has huge, much more ramifications. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. That's Nick Damon. I'm John Hindorf. Uh, Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCard.com, will join us uh, later on in the show. Uh, of course, we're starting with F1 because we've now had a Formula One race and uh, everybody's talking about it. And we've got another one coming up this weekend uh, in Malaysia. Um, the... Might rain, therefore there's a chance for non-Mercedes victory. Yes. Uh, let's run through a few other things. Who says they aren't giving up on F1? Germany. <laughs> no. No. Uh, Renault, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> Renault, uh, what we mean, the, 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 the partners, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the erstwhile, we're in this together, company who's in this together with the ultimate dumpers in the, in the doo-doo of Red Bull. Mm. It's not good, is it? It really isn't good. Um, also, Red Bull saying they never dominated like Mercedes. Uh, uh, sorry, how short are your memories? Vettel won the last nine in a row in 2013. Yes, but it, that was because, that was because not because that they were so much better than everybody else. It was because everybody else messed it up, apparently. Now, part of that is true. But even so, we never saw Vettel get pushed, did we? No, in that car. It's it's a little bit disingenuous. A um, little bit. <laughs> I mean, I like the fact that it's turned down. I think it's uh, what is it? It's um, the the basic what's happening now is there is a rumbling of um, uh, rule of oh, rumbling of kind of uh, mudslinging now between uh, Red Bull and Renault. Um, yeah, this is not the way to work with a the partner. They, no. Red Bull had manoeuvred themselves. Only they and Toro Rosso had Renault as an engine supply. Wanted to become effectively a full works outfit, give all the information into it, influencing who joins it, and just threw them under a bus in Melbourne. Now, Renault came back quite punchy, saying, hang on a second, and the reason the engine had problems is because you told us he wanted the latest version before it was tested, and we rather stupidly, oh, they, they even admitted it rather stupidly, they actually gave in and gave them the engine they wanted. Um, and then, you know, obviously it, it turned around that um, Adrian Newey had a, a big go, and, then for, and Renault have come back over the last couple of days, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. right. Our engine isn't great, but your car's not perfect, Mr. Newey. Um, so they've, they've come back and it's now turned into one of these kind of um, uh, rather unattractive slagging matches that are going on. Um, and it's quite, you know, basically, because Newey came out you know, really aggressively, I think, after it, saying, oh, it's just Renault. It's only Renault's fault. It's nothing to do with us. We're absolutely. First. The Red Bull have actually now accused, uh, Renault have accused Red Bull of lying. Oh dear, it's all going down the tubes. Can I, can I read you? The, I'll read you the So he said, um, Cyril Abitibul, who I, one of the names, he said, uh, he admits that Renault was struggling. 
I'm not looking for excuses, he says. I'm not looking for excuses. There we are. Uh, but it says, Nui is wrong to say it's just down to his power unit. In addition to our problems, Red Bull has some chassis problems that do not help the situation. In particular, lack of rear stability. These two problems to ensure, combined to ensure the car is difficult to drive. When asked uh, about Nui, he said, it's hard to have a partner who lies. Adrian is a charming gentleman an outstanding engineer but he has spent his life criticising his engine manufacturers he's too old to change that is true in fairness but does this need to be the public domain no should, you, should they not be having these rows over video conference and then when they all get when they all go and put their press release they go we're a bit disappointed we're working together trying to sort it out now obviously it's manner from heaven for us mm. really not the best uh, you know for either Renault nor Red Bull and you know it, Red Bull have managed to over the past few weeks effectively get no sympathy for themselves at all and uh, I, I, I don't know why you put Helmut Marco in front of him uh, in front of any sort of interview because he just makes he doesn't obviously understand how dumb he sounds each time uh, what engine does Squadratoro Rosso have? They have the they have the Renault. They have the yes, Renault. yes. Um, not struggling as much then as as Red Bull with that. I think if you put the Red Bull drivers in the Toro Rosso, it would have gone as fast as the Red Bull. Really? You know, they're only a bit behind with two complete rookies. Um, yes. I don't think the the current Red Bull is yet a particularly good car. Uh, however, sure it will be. Sure it will be. Uh, however, if uh, if Renault's engines aren't perhaps performing uh, as well as they should, whose engines have had huge gains, gains according to Williams this week? Right, they three, so is he talking about Ferrari? Correct. Yes, because Ferrari basically did what... I mean, I think, I think it's quite... If you get a chance, to, uh, dear listen, listen, listen back to the F1... Uh, preview because Sam Collins on it says some very intelligent things. He basically said that all this token business about you can replace bits and bobs of your engine is a complete balderdash this year because effectively everyone said their engine is unreliable. And because you're allowed to replace bits of reliability, effectively the teams have got 95% new engines because mm. the bits they haven't upgraded, they replaced for reliability. Now, Ferrari obviously turned around and done a particularly good job. Um, their errors and curves wasn't very good. The up and downy bits surprisingly weren't marvelous either. Um, They've sorted that out, and they, you know, power. Uh, I think power, power wise, they're not far off now. Well, and that has surprised who this week? The Ferrari uh, additional power, not Williams. Oh, Sauber. Uh, Sauber have been surprised by the Ferrari power leap. <laughs> yes. Oh, hang on, our car's going faster than it's supposed to. <laughs> we should have charged these boys more. Mm. Uh, yes, they should have. Um, good points for Sauber, as we uh, mentioned. Uh, going back to the, the Williams, though, however, they are on a development uh, uh, kick, if you like, a development programme that they haven't been able to do for the last few years because they've not been the best funded. And this week, despite the fact they're rather surprised at uh, Ferrari and their engine games, they do still believe they can outdevelop their rivals, apparently. Which I can only mean they've got a very conservative version of the car out there at the moment. Um, also, obviously, it's obviously not the worst helps. thing to do at the start of the year, though, is it? No, and it does help. Obviously, you've got both the drivers in the race. And, of course, they only had one last time because of Bottas' back injury, which apparently now is fine. Um, certainly, we've seen no rumours about who's going, to come, who's going to replace him. So, it looks very much like he will be fine to drive as well. Um, so, Williams looking looking very bullish. But they're going to have to get a little bit more... Um, 
aggressive in their race strategies, I think, if they're going to really start interesting people. I know. It it has been a bit disappointing, uh, really, hasn't it? Just quickly going back, I'm just flicking through some headlines here. Uh, just quickly going back to Renault. I mean, Renault are pretty much throwing away the 2015 season now, aren't they? I think it's in response to... I think what they've basically gone, right, if Red Bull are going to be a bunch of... Mm, then we're going to just say, yeah, no. I think it's got toys and pram interfaces... Um, actually, the interface between the toy and the pram has been removed now because they're now in separate places on both sides. They're both mm. fed up. And it's probably all going to come down to whether or not. But when, when was the last they time they want to buy Toro Rosso or not? When when was the last time you heard any engine manufacturer in any form of motorsport, never mind at the top of the pyramid, saying, "Well, we think our customers at Red Bull and Toro Rosso might have to wait till next season at the earliest." before we can give them an engine that's capable of winning a race. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. I think it was Renault last year, wasn't it? No, okay. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, no, and it's, and it's, it's not been, you know, the, the quantum leap that's been made. I mean, we've, we've always had dominant engine manufacturers, but it appears that, you know, the combination of the complexities of these engines and the uh, restrictions uh, put on their development in season has, has kind of meant that, I, I must. I don't quite work. If Ferrari can make the gains they've made, then there's no reason why Renault couldn't make the gains they've made. So something's gone seriously wrong there. Because let's be honest, but if Renault do know how to make an F1 engine, they've won a mm. shed. Well, they've won more world championships since 1990 than anyone has, uh, engine engine wise. So they've got a long pedigree of knowing exactly what to do. Um, but they got it wrong, and then they got it wrong again. Whereas Ferrari got it wrong, and then got it right. And Mercedes got it right, and then got it righter. Yes. Uh, you're listening to Mary Water Sport. Uh, just after a quarter past eight, getting on for 20 past eight here in the UK. Uh, that's still just twenty coming on to 20 past four in uh, the US for a couple more weeks. No, just this goes, but our clocks go forward on, on the weekend. Oh, do they? Yep. Are we springing forward this weekend? Yeah, springing forward this weekend. Excellent. So not only do I have to uh, drive back from where I am at the weekend, but I'm going to lose an hour of doing it. Lovely. Just go faster. Okay. Uh, in the mighty Jeep Cherokee. Uh, Have you got one of those? Ah, well, that's a story that I can tell you at another time. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the other big news in Formula One, which we were kind of expecting. But officially this week, the German GP has dropped off the calendar. Yeah, apparently, despite the fact that Mercedes sort of voted to to mostly underwrite the losses and promote it. Mm. Um, so they say they, so they pay half is, is, the Isn't, it the, isn't it the case that neither of the tracks want... Well, the Nürburgring kind of up in the end don't know whether they can have it or can't do it. And uh, Hockenheim Ring said, well, we kind of don't want it, actually. It's a bit so of... it, was, it was Nürburgring's term, wasn't it? Yes. And they obviously... The whole Nürburgring is a mess at the moment. It has been what, ever since that company came in, what, 2000? Six, two thousand seven, something like that. When we, when we turned out that steakhouse and couldn't buy something because we had no no nerve. Because we only bucks. had money. You really have money and no Nurburgring dollars. That's right. That's right. A, God, that was. A we had no Nurburgring rings. Rings, yes, mm. ring dollar euros. Um, yeah, I, it's a very bad thing when the German Germany can't get a Grand Prix. We've got no Grand Prix in France. Um, it's ridiculous. It's not how it should be, and it's the example of. You know, it's the problem when you've got half the money the sport makes being siphoned off by venture capitalists. Uh, it just seems sad to me. The other rumour that I've heard from a couple of places, and I haven't seen it reported anywhere, but 
a couple of very well-placed people who I have massive respect for said Italy is the next one, and there may yeah. be an issue with uh, with the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. What do you know about yeah. that? Yeah, the problem, it's... Um... It's not the usual one of noise, it is, development, etc. It's, it's an usual uh, sort of backing from the local council or... Uh, uh, not the council, prefecture have, or whatever yeah, it is. province yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of lost its you know it's got certain things it needs to do to keep the grand prix and it seems to be mostly a political issue uh i don't think it's financial because the italians turn in enough numbers to actually pay enough money through the ticket barriers to make it okay but it's no it's all about logistics of actually running it in the park and there seems to be a lack of desire for some reason from the, the incoming provincial government please correct me i'm wrong on this one but i think this i read this a while ago uh, and it is now looking quite wobbly it's interesting because i heard it whilst i was away at sebring and nothing came of it and i was kind of going to tweet it and i thought well even if i'm right then some smarty pants f1 journalist will say i'm not right yes. um and i don't want to get into that again but then on sunday <laughs> at the airport the great and the good as there was only one lounge orlando we're all in the same place and um i discreetly asked a few people who as i say are far better connected in formula one paddocks than i am uh if there was any veracity to this rumor that a couple of people had um talk to me electronically about at least mm. uh, whilst I was at Sebring and apparently it is quite a serious situation which um, at the moment nobody is uh, nobody is reporting so it, it seems unthinkable to me Nick that we could have a Formula 1 season where there's no French, German or Italian Grand Prix Well the thing is and this is the, this is the and yet actually I should understood. say sorry Nick before I let you answer that there's been no sign of the French Grand Prix coming back, despite a massive undertaking by the FFSA uh, and the French Motorsport Authority uh, to lobby the FIA, who are based in Paris, with a Frenchman, to try and get the French Grand Prix back to a, the president of the FIA, who's a Frenchman, <laughs> and they've, I mean, it just hasn't gone any further getting the French Grand Prix even anywhere near back on the calendar. So that surprises me. Germany, all right, there's a, there's a venue issue there, particularly with the Nürburgring. But then, it's if a you money add... issue, it's not. A, it's a money issue. The whole the whole point about it is, is that the fact that Azerbaijan, who have who are sitting on a pool of oil and run by a less than democratic government. Uh, are prepared to put cubic dollars into Bernie Eccleston's pockets and therefore CVC Partners' do- pockets, they go, right, you can have a race. Fantastic. The fact is, if you're not sponsored by the government and you actually have to make your money on not just ticket sales, everything else, running on some sort of, like, multiplier uh, every year to actually... Oh, and next year... sense, and... and- you know, you effectively price it out of being held in those countries. Now, the only issue, hello, yeah, still hello? there, yes. Okay, the problem, the issue is that you know that people, the, the, the viewing audience is still very heavily European centric. So yeah. it's and you know, view figures are going down. The area, there's a lot of problems, and and it, you know, it, you get to the point where you, you realise, and what happens, I don't know. But the fact is, that the current situation with Bernie and CVC CVC partners running the show has stopped working and let's just run this right back we wouldn't be where we are without bernie uh in every positive way prior him to coming around teams were turning up 
when they wanted to or not when they wanted to for start money. The promoters were taking most of the money. The safety was appalling. So you have to, there's an awful lot of people to thank Bernie for. They try to you know, make him out to be, you know, the evil and an evil uh, man in every way. Absolutely not. He's, he's, he, the reason the sport is is, is seen by so many, loved by so many, is entirely down to Bernie Eccleston. However, everything runs its course, and I don't believe his or his outlook works in the year. It hasn't really worked for about seven years, actually. Uh, but every year it gets more and more um, untenable. And you need to have a, a, some sort of velvet revolution. How that's going to happen, and I don't know, because the problem is, at the end of the day, the FIA sold the rights to, the, to uh, F1 for 100 years to uh, burn. And uh, he sold it onto a venture capitalist party, party uh, company who are not going to, to to remove their assets without being paying a vast amount of money, which can only be afforded by a, another venture capitalist company. So, where are you at? Is the question on that? But it, and, but what we will end up with, John, is we'll end up with three or four Grand Prix in Europe. But, you know, Max Mosley wanted to do that ten, fifteen years ago because of the um, fag advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just happened now due to financial reasons. Silverstone will, 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 will plunder on for a few more years, and you've got you know Hungary and that sort of thing, which, which seems to be able to get the money together. But you know, it's, it's 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 it needs a radical rethink and a radical change in how we allocate races around i'm not saying that you know there can't be any races outside europe but when you get when you haven't got italy you haven't got germany you haven't got france i know italy's still there but you haven't got germany you haven't got france and italy's in serious trouble and don't get me wrong no one they're not going to put into imola there's nothing else is going to step up if uh, if monta goes mm. what, what sort of, what sort of what, you know, fia world champion, oh. world champion is that you know well, you could say it's too. It has been too European centric um, with the amount of races that are there. But as you say, the bulk of the current audience is there. What I guess they and would all ca- the teams. Yes, but what I what I suspect that they would counter with is, well, those guys are going to watch wherever it is around the world. Uh, they're not going to the Grand Prix. Um, therefore. You know what we have to look at is how do we expand the audience in the future, and that means we have to take it to new marketplaces. And I understand that, but you know the underlying thing is who can give us the most money. And um, European governments are highly unlikely, with one or two notable ex- exceptions, to put money in pocket, uh, put hand in pocket to put money straight into. Bernard Charles's pocket. I fe- I fe- I've managed now to find the article I was looking for. Excellent. Well, Googled. Um, yeah. Right. This is the. It's 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 a good. It's, it's interesting document. It's, it's, it's quite well written because it doesn't. It's, it's not sensationalising. It's just a heavy cloud of uncertainty, and it backs it up. Uh, last year, F1 uh, Superintendent Austin warned that the current contractual terms are a disaster, and once the current deal expires after the 2016 race, Formula One will say bye bye to Monza. That's just positioning, obviously. Yeah. Worse the situation. This is this is the key thing. It then emerged that the so-called new local stability law passing through Parliament could well cost Monza up to 20 million euros. 20 million and what? Sorry, just lost you for a second there. Tax exemptions. Tax exemptions, right. Now, if anyone knows about Italy and their, and their problems, one of their problems, as it happens a lot, is actually getting everyone to pay the tax they're due. And so that the exemptions are often moved away. Um, so, yeah, they're trying to save it, but this is the problem they've got. Is they've now got a, fight, a double, a double they're going to be Bernie's going to ask for loads more cash past 2016, and they're going to have loads less cash coming in. Mm-hmm. 
You're getting a bit scratchy, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you one last question, and then we'll get you back to talk about um, superbikes in the second half of the programme this evening, because I know we've got uh, Graham Goodwin, who's standing by for us uh, down in France. Uh, Pirelli, still yes. in Formula One, but wants a quick... Uh, what's the sort of what? Uh, a quick. They want everybody to have a look at the, at the tires going forward and come to a quick decision about how it might look um, a, like a revamp, if you like. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that everyone realizes is that the current look of F one, whilst classic, needs to look a bit more like a road car and, and, and no road cars on a 13 inch wheel and no road car has high profile tires so what they want to do is they want to get some sort of commitment that they are going to have um a uh t- changing design they're going to go to an 18 inch and there's going to be low profile tires and therefore they look more relative to relevant sorry to road machines that will probably give them you know another impetus to sell the marketing concept back to the, to the HQ. The issue, of course, about that is if you change the design of the tyres, then you have to completely change the cars. Correct. Because they use the, the, the springing of the sidewalls, the tyres is actually probably more than the springing of the springs on most F1 cars. Yeah. Um, maybe you've been lucky enough to see a car going through the, the Beckett's complex. I bet it's in Silverstone. You can look at, and you just see how much the cars are leaning on the tires as they go through. And they, the cars are leaning, but the tires are they're moving moving so much underneath them as they grip grip through. So it needs to happen. It problem is it's going to happen. It'll have to happen for the next car redesign, which is apparently 2017, because it will be a complete bottom up redesign to get this. Because the suspension will be completely different. Good news about that though is there'll probably be uh, a prototype single make tyre supplier by then because it seems like every single uh, part of the uh, prototype bar LMP1 is going to be with a single tyre supplier and Pirelli certainly one of the ones mm. that uh, I'm expecting to be uh, in well, in the hunt if not announced as the LMP2 FIA. I, I think, well obviously the, the, P, yeah, the, the difference between a P car and um, an F1 car is not as much as it was. The, the weight difference is down to less than 200 kilos. So there is a lot more cross-learning. Well, particularly on a P2 um, car. Not, not, not particularly with the, with the Nissan, in fairness. You're not going to learn much <laughs> for the Nissan for an F1 car with a front-wheel drive against rear-wheel drive. But the others, you know, certainly... Yeah, but we're know, talking the, uh, P2, though, and there'll only be four yeah, yeah. constructors and one engine. And they almost certainly will run on 18-inch rims. So, and mm. I'm going to let you go. Uh, as I say, a bit scratchy at the moment. Coming up okay. to, to half past, we'll get Nick back in a uh, a little while after we've spoken for, with Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, who's not in the S.H.E.D this week. Uh, he can tell us where in just a moment. But uh, for the moment, Nick Damon, thanks for joining us. No worries. So midweek motorsport. Then it's series ten, episode thirteen. We're going to stretch our technical ability here and try and hook up with Graham Goodwin who's in the south of France where he's been everywhere over the last few days I'm not sure he's been at home in time to wash his socks yet do you have stinky socks Graham Goodwin editor of dailysportscar.com uh, no, I bought new ones, So, but you're absolutely right. It's been a mad, mad March, and uh, you're perfectly correct. I think I've about a day and a half at home so far in March. Yes, uh, I know so how you feel. Nutty. I know indeed. how you feel. It, it is indeed the south of France. It is not the, uh, it's not a shed, but it's actually probably more like a shed than mine not a shed is. Right, well, before we... We'll, we'll talk about where you were last week and things Audi, because there's some quite interesting things to come out of that. But obviously, it's been the uh, ELMS... Test days, their version of the prologue, of course. It's the WEC prologue coming up this weekend. 
uh, and I'll be joining Graham down at Ricard for a couple of programmes at least from there on Friday and at Saturday. But let's uh, let's talk about first of all some news coming through to us today. We were reporting what last week I think it was uh, that Motorbase were quitting BTCC. Uh, or at least putting that in the back burner and concentrating on GT. Another well-known British team who've dabbled, more than dabbled in GT, have decided to, to move away from GT and from Blancpain, Graham. Bad news here. Yeah, it's Fortec Motorsport. And, uh, you know, when when Fortec came in with uh, none other than Trevor Foster of, uh, you know, of, of uh, past renown uh, Formula One and in uh, top-level sports cars has put in touch, in, in charge, rather, of the Fortec GT programme, I think it all looked very good. It was a couple of brand new Mercedes Benz SLS GT3s, and but in truth, John, it never really seemed to get momentum. There was a, a, a rumor at the time that this was Fortex's um, lever, if you like, towards trying to get into something like DTM with Mercedes. But the reality is, for whatever reason, it never really took off. And you know, I think there's a warning here, which is this was clearly a, a particularly commercial effort. It's not as easy as perhaps some teams make it look to get this done. Uh, it's not simply a matter of coming forward with a shiny, you know, half million euro motor car and people forming an orderly queue. The, the business plan's going to be right. And something's gone wrong there with that plan. Um, I'm very sad to say that something's gone wrong with that plan because they're a good bunch at Fortec and Trevor in particular is an absolute gent. But uh, yeah, sad to say that the GT side at Fortec is closing its doors. Does that necessarily reflect badly and, and what does it say if anything about particularly Blancpain because there's a series that I've always looked on frankly if I'm honest as a series for a pro-am kind of setup um, that alright one or two people have, have stretched the bounds of that but this is neither the time nor the place to go into that but you're talking about a business case here which um, when we uh, talked with Motorbase last week, the business case was sound from their point of view, but it's a one that Fortec perhaps can't make work. Um, what for whatever reason they can't make work? First and foremost, John, I think whilst you may be right from the past of the Blompen Endurance Series, certainly it's taken a big leap forward in the last year or two. And this year, and I think it's twenty-three all-pro cars in that series. It's it's a very high-quality grid indeed for twenty fifteen. But that, the, but that is my point, Graham. In in that, who's going to fund that if you've got two pros in it? If there's no arm money into that, who funds those twenty-three cars? Well, I think there, there was a reality there that it is generally speaking the the rich owners of those cars are indeed kind of shadow factory efforts in some case you know it, it is a, it is a series that has got high quality but perhaps is looking for a bit of an identity uh, but as far as the kind of the Forte story is concerned i think the um i i'm at a loss to be honest with you as to how they couldn't make it work other than other than it really still is a very difficult marketplace. When we talk about entry lists for races with 30, 40, 50, 60 cars on it, it almost feels as if it's easy, but it isn't. You know, we should never ever forget that uh, these cars, you know, whether it be a GT3 car, an LMP2 car in prototype money, because they are the, if you like, the, the default pro-am machinery now in world motorsport, is that these are hugely expensive pieces of kit to buy and to run. And that to, you know, there, was, there was not a, a terribly lengthy queue of the people with the wherewithal to actually 
um, you know, to, to pony up every year, every season, and provide that kind of finance. And, and perhaps, you know, Forting have just hit that bump in the road where they just didn't have the right people queuing for their cars over the last couple of seasons. And certainly, you know, we've we've had a lot of occasions when Fortech could and should have been on a grid that for whatever reason they've not managed to be there. Uh, let's talk about where you've been for the last couple of days, which is Paul Ricard, always one of my favourite places uh, to go. And delighted to say I'll be joining you there later on in the week for the WEC prologue. Logistics not quite working for us to be down there. Uh, but you were there, which is great. So we can ask you about the... The ELMS testing days, very good news for Greg Murphy and his teams, at least in, in terms of the times. Were they, were they looking as good as the timesheets would suggest, Greg? Uh, I think well, I think there was an awful lot of sandbagging, as always is in these test days. But, uh, you know, on the odd occasion, someone will be let off the leash. In this case, Nathaniel Berton was certainly one of them. And yet the Murphy's men uh, are uh, finished up quickest overall. But the good news... News, I think, is that is that the championship appears to be in pretty rude health. There's a very good-looking LMP2 grid with new cars. We'll come talk about those in a moment. Some new colour schemes, which you know makes it actually a very good-looking grid indeed, at all. But actually, about P3, the world first for this test was the the public. Let's call it public. If we call ourselves and the rest of the media pack the public, um, the Janetta Nissan making its debut and having an absolutely faultless couple of days uh you know they they went through all of their job list they got all the drivers they had there to drive the car into the car and did so well even getting um chris hoy having his very first night laps in anything on a racetrack wow uh also got some wet laps because it rained of course in the the last session today but it went so well that they even found time uh in the test to get a couple of the customers that haven't yet received their cars into the car, so has helped them with, you know, their kind of stakeholder relations, if you like, um, for um, you know for, for the the cars that we expect to be at Silverstone. And it answers, by the way, to the question I know a lot of listeners have asked on the collective and elsewhere as to how many we might expect at Silverstone. I am told expect around five uh, Giletta Nissans at Silverstone for the opening round of the European Le Mans series. Um, the the guys have gone back in very good spirits. Uh, the times you will see if you look at Daily Sports Corrals for on the web are not particularly quick, but that was a car that arrived having had a shakedown on the runway with no setup data at all. There's plenty of testing time to go, uh, but uh, the, the attention I know of the team at uh, Garforth is going to be to get cars built, and they've got a very orderly queue of, uh, of uh, customers who have been extremely patient. We had at least three of those teams represented at Paul Ricard that I witnessed. And, you know, what we had at the end of the day was a very happy couple of customers, a very happy Team LNT driving squad, and in particular one, Mr. L. Tomlinson, and an extremely happy technical crew under the guardianship of Ewan Baldwin. And a huge congratulations to them. Massive interest in that pit lane about that car. The other bit of LMP3 news, by the way, came from Gerard Neveu uh, this afternoon. And I can tell you reasonably exclusively uh, that we will before the end of the season, he believes, have a second brand of LMP3 car racing. And I think wow. that's going to be the Ligier. I think we're going to see a Ligier out before the end of the LMS season. Just to confirm, LMP3 is open chassis. Anybody can put a chassis in. There's no upper limit on it. Correct. Right. And we've currently got four uh, companies that have declared an interest in doing so. My guess is the Riley Ave car, this Bill Riley and Tony, 
Miave in collaboration will likely appear if and I believe when IMSA commit to replacing the FLM 09, the PC Orica, with something new. Uh, so my guess is that that's one we won't see immediately. The other one that we're waiting to see is the collaboration of uh, Sebastian Loeb Racing, whose old car, by the way, uh, was testing uh, in the hands of the Eurasia team, who are new additions to European Le Mans series. Uh, Sebastian Lebracing, Sora Composites, who listeners mm. might remember as being the company that took on the intellectual property of the Pescarolo tub, um, and Ades, who listeners might remember, were uh, the people behind the design of the tub of the of the car rather for Lotus LMP2, and were also the, one of the companies involved in that rather unfortunate. Uh, legal process that you were witness to, John, in the pit lane at Le Mans last year. Yes. Um, so the, the, we're waiting to see what happens with some of the remaining uh, potential contenders. But at the moment, restricted principally, I believe, by the availability of powertrains, uh, is we should see up to five Ginetta Nissans at the opening round of the uh, the European Le Mans series. On the basis of what we saw over the last weekend... Don't expect these cars to be completely fully up to speed. They were at or around, uh, you know, in, in clear running, at or around GT pace. Uh, but what I was hearing, and I'll, I'll keep it private in terms of the potential for it at the moment, because it was done in that kind of context, but some very encouraging news indeed about what the guys think about the powertrain, the torque the car's producing. It's a very good-looking little car. And not at all, you know, I think if, if, if I use the word gawky, what I mean by that is you've seen some of the previous CN-class coupes where yes. it sort of see, it feels like you've got the wrong size of uh, cockpit for the, for the underpinnings. It's not like that at all. It is a very, very attractive car. Spotted a tweet, by the way, from Ryan Eversley uh, earlier today who said at first sight of the car, he genuinely thought it was a Peugeot 908 I sort of know what he means yeah. uh, it's a very much more basic shape than that but a very slippery little car with a very powerful and very talky V8 in the back and my guess would be when those cars finally do get up to speed that we might actually see some shock results uh, and just following up what you said uh, about PC um, I am almost certain now that it will be LMP3 that will replace uh, PC in, in IMSA competition. The question, I think, is when rather than if. Uh, and let's be quite honest, um, LMPC has been a great servant of IMSA in it's whichever been, guys. It's been brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the new P2 cars. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the new P2 cars, Graham, that uh, have been down in the south of France uh, this uh, past couple of three days, Monday and Tuesday. Um, and if you. Quite a few. Let, let's start off with the more off-the-wall ones because um, you we, we have seen, or at least you have seen, the SMP car, uh, which has been a little uh, while in coming. It has. I mean, Paolo Cantoni was there uh, today to take the wraps off his new creation, which is the SMP Racing BR. This for Boris Rotenberg Engineering 01. Uh, Nissan engine car, very neat and tidy looking. Probably the, the P2 car that I've seen... So far, John, that is most clearly derived from single-seater aero concepts. And, you know, have a look at the pictures on the web. Uh, and there's plenty posted on the list of collected. We updated those pictures when Dave Lord had an opportunity to point his rather more cultured lens than my iPhone at the car later this afternoon. Uh, later, not this afternoon. It was, uh, it was Tuesday afternoon, of course, wasn't it? 
Um, but uh, it's a very good-looking car. It isn't quite complete yet, so we didn't see the car running. They're waiting for some electronics and some bodywork components for that car. But uh, my guess would be, just taking a look at the general layout of that car, it does look very neat and tidy, very clever, uh, you know, compact little car, like the other cars we've seen so far that are all refreshingly different from each other. We'll come on to one of those in just a moment, I'm sure. Um, it's got coherence. It's got design coherence. It's, it's, it's a car that you can see with, you know, the decent paint scheme um, on board uh, that uh, could well be, uh, you know, a, a bit of a fan favourite. But uh, let's wait and see. Uh, what else have you seen? You'll have seen the Orica, have you? Yes, we did, and uh, very quick indeed it was too on the sec- second day of the test in the hands of the Tyrio by TDS racing team. This will be, uh, this is indeed the first, the one, uh, first car that we've seen in front of the media. There are two uh, Orica 05s um, uh, currently with the teams that intend to campaign them. The other one, uh, John, I hope you'll see with me later this week in the hands of KCMG, and of course a little bit of news about KCMG to come. But um, that's another very neat and tidy looking car clearly very efficient based of course on the the rebellion the 2014 uh rebellion lmp1 tub and by the look of things again with a brand new car that looks to be a potential contender too we're gonna have an embarrassment of riches of course with these new coupes this week with uh with the stracker dome still to come and a car of course john which neither you or i've yet seen actually turn a wheel no it's clearly been doing a lot of testing as the guys have been working through the issues they had at the end of last year bumped into a couple of the stracker guys um at the end of uh, running as they arrive for the WEC test, and they cannot wait to get on track. Cannot wait for it. Um, I have a suspicion they'll be. WC. I shall, I have a suspicion that the word sand and bag is not in their lexicon for later this week. That might be a I car that we see gonna, th- go. Yeah, I think we're going to see those guys show us what they can do. They they are <laughs> frustrated beyond belief that they've been away from what they regard as their rightful home, the uh, the WEC paddock. And I think we're going to see the boys uh, unleashed, and I hope so. They've been, it's been a long time coming, uh, the return of Stracker Racing to uh, the International Sports Car Racing paddock, and we're about to get back to that. Um, there is one other car to talk about, and mm-hmm. it wasn't there, but I have seen the drawings of the car, and it's one that I'll be writing up uh, this week uh, for Delhi Sports Car, and that is... Uh, the proposed Wolf LMP2. This one's now, been bu- get- this one's been bubbling under for a little while, hasn't it? Because we've seen the the CN cars, we've seen uh, the guys running around, we've heard that, that the rumours have abounded for what two or three years now that this oh, Wolf branded car was going to come up. Way more than a rumour. I mean, I know Wolf said at the start of the year where they announced their participation in the uh, ELMS with the Ibanez Racing Team. Uh, this is Jose Ibanez's team uh, who has uh, acquired the two ex-Millennium uh, Racing uh, ADR Delta cars uh, after the unfortunate uh, failure of that team to, to, to manage to get to the grid last year for the WEC. Very nice they look to in all over yellow. And with uh, Ivan Bellarosa in the lead car, that thing is quick as well. as the Orica 03Rs. But Ivan showed me, um, not for publication at the moment, I'm afraid, so sorry, listeners and readers, uh, the plans for the Wolf uh, LMP2 car, dubbed Tornado, by the way, and Tornado because nice. I believe 
uh, I believe, because the, uh, the Mr. Bellarosa has something of an admiration for the fighter bomber of that name. Um, so <laughs> he's uh, uh, you've met Ivan. Ivan is a big character. He's a fabulous bloke. He's clearly very, clearly very proud of the work that's been done there. Uh, can, can I just a mighty price tag? Well, I was yeah. going to say, Graham. Can I just suggest if they are that far down the road, and these aren't just yeah. conceptual drawings? Uh, uh, it sounds like they're, they're far not. more than that. Um, yeah. Then they have probably already put seven figures of euros, um, and yes. the the first figure might not be a one either into that. Uh, it, 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 well, happily for them in this circumstance, it is a one. Right. Um, but you're absolutely right, it's seven figures, and they have progressed way beyond conceptual drawings to Winsor work with a model. And you know how expensive that is, John, from your time oh, yes. in RML, for instance. It, it's, it's a huge investment. I'm not, for this week's show, going to get into the debate about the P2 regulations. And I'm not going to do that because, of course, this week we've got a number of meetings that are taking place with the ACO. Uh, what I am going to say is that I hope that by the time we get into next week, there'll be an opportunity to present the ACO's point of view. Uh, but all I would say here at, the, at this moment is I can tell you right here and now, absolutely exclusively, that there is another very live LMP2 programme uh, that intends for there to be a car on track by the middle of this year that we, we've never covered yet on, on Midweek wow. Sports. That has certainly never been out there in the public domain and it's a very serious programme indeed. So that's in addition that to the Wolf? In addition to the Wolf, in addition to the BR, in addition to the Dome, in addition to anything else that we're currently aware of. Heck, excellent. Um, dry, that's the cars... The nut at the end of yep. the wheel always very important, obviously. <laughs> uh, deal's still being done. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and what can you tell us about drivers? Phil Keane. Phil Keane's got a deal. He has. He's going to be at golf racing this year and uh, bumped into Phil at uh, the back of the garage after he'd had his days running done. He was uh, impressive enough that he went off early from the test, but uh, he's going to be with Mike Wainwright and Adam Carroll, I believe, in the 911 RSR and was buzzing about that car. Of course, Phil's been doing a lot of GT3 racing of late, particularly in the British GT Championship, and will again be there. It gives them a slight clash they're trying to work around at the moment, but it'll be either a full an absolutely full programme in British GT and or a very full programme in European Le Mans series. And the programme in British GT is aboard uh, the... It's one of the uh, the Barwell Motorsports um, BMW Z4 GT3s in Demon Tweaks uh, livery with... Uh, hang on, is it? John Minshaw is, uh, I think, is, is Phil's co-pilot for that. Uh, so he's got a busy year, which is great news for Phil. Uh, so... Good news, by the way, I was hearing out of contacts in North America about Phil's performance because, of course, back in the public eye as a result of winning the Sunoco Daytona Challenge and uh, took part in that race, uh, it was the wheel of the car, wasn't it? The the, the yeah. uh, second Action Express car. 31 I car, yeah. Genuinely, genuinely believe, John, there is every prospect of Phil Keane potentially being a full-time member of that squad for 2016. Uh, he impressed enough that I believe had they had space this year that Phil Keane would have been a full season Tusk entrant uh, he'll have to trade in his white overalls for something else then um, the big changes <laughs> there as well um, uh, Nick Yellerly we had on the programme mm. recently talking to us about going to Jota everything hunky and dory except not Nick's not now going to be in that not. car 
which he's is not a shame. in that car. It's a big shame because he's a very talented young man. Uh, what can you say about it? Not a lot other than to say I, I believe that the, the commercial side of things did not work out. And that, of course, has happened very late. What did we have at the test? Well, for one thing, we saw uh, one of the other uh, new revised cars, but with a new name, of course, the Gibson 015S. Looks great. Uh, looks great in a revised Jota livery. Looks, if anything, even better in a very different livery for Greece Motorsports. But uh, starting with Jota, uh, Jota had signed on there, Philippe Albuquerque there. Harry Tinknell was actually on test duty for the team. And as you might expect from Harry, uh, pedaled that car very quickly indeed. No news yet as to what the plan is at Jota. No news, uh, no, no plan yet finalised at Jota. But I can tell you that uh, they're aiming high. And uh, as always with the uh, Jota Sport guys, we know this, don't we, John? Mm. Uh, whatever they do is going to be absolutely top-notch. Be prepared for this year. Um, be prepared, sorry, go uh, back. Jota Sport, be, to, go, go back, Graham, because we lost you for a moment. The connection a bit in and out. Be prepared for what from Jota this year? Be prepared for something very top-notch from ah, Jota okay. this year, I think it's fair to say. And, you know, let's face it, they're going to have to go some to better the year they had last year. It's very clear they intend to try to defend their Le Mans win. It's very clear they intend to actually start uh, you know, uh, that uh, campaign in, uh, with the WEC field with uh, a yet another fantastic run at the Spa six hours. And it's going to be uh, Mitch Jevons, isn't it, with them for that race. Yep. But it's pretty clear that if, if I think at this stage beyond Le Mans, which of course is the pinnacle, if they had one other thing they would go away and think this year had been successful, is they intend to take the LMS title. End of story. Yeah, I think they would like to to add that. Um, I, I'm not going to say what I've heard, but I think, and, and we haven't talked about this and we can't talk about it on the air, I think it's this probably, from what you've said, it's the same uh, as what I've been hearing, and I think it will yes. ruffle feathers, raise eyebrows in a good way, and oh, it yeah. will be oh, a very, yeah. very big story. Uh, hopefully, we'll I mean, We've never to... had a NASCAR star, have we, in, the, in our MPT? <laughs> a, man that's walked... Patrick's been... <laughs> a man that's walked on the moon joining the ELMS grid <laughs> is... Uh... Anyway... I think it's you know what we look we we always look for good news. Children have given us good news time after time after time. It is disappointing that Mick Yololi will not be there, um, but uh, you know what there'll be another chapter, and uh, I hope there'll be another chapter for Nick as well. You know he's a talented lad. He just needs to get the commercial sorted. Yeah, uh, and nothing to do. By the way, I can confirm this. Uh, nothing to do with driver rankings or regulations no. or anything like that. No, okay. correct. All no. right, um, let's move on to where you were. I think that's kind of taken all the big bullet points out of the ELMS uh, test WAC to come. Uh, and Graham and I will be uh, talking to you from Ricard later on in the week. Check the schedule on the front page for details. Also, by the way, there's a new inside Gibson, uh, which uh, I did last week now, and as soon as that gets put together, that will be in the schedule as well. We'll try and get that in uh, towards the end of this week uh, to go alongside the WEC prologue stuff. Well worth a listen there. Last week... Whilst we were, in fact, the reason that you weren't on the show last week is because you were at Neuburg, um, which is now the new home of Audi Motorsport and a very bright, shiny, lovely and very expensive and large new home that is. 
Uh, yeah, it, it looks very Audi as you approach it. Uh, you know, it's, it's like a kind of, how can you put it, like a kind of Death Star on the horizon, uh, <laughs> with you know, the all, all great, brilliantly done. You, you can you can tell immediately that that's Audi, but it's um, an extra. I have to say, an extraordinary day. One of the most extraordinary days I've had in motorsport. Uh, Audi really did roll out the carpet with a kind of rather odd uh, kind of list of invitees, because of course. Uh, Seabrig was on there for, I don't think we had a single American journalist there. First 70 members of the world media to see it. I was utterly privileged to be on that list, I have to tell you. And they really did do us proud. Um, there were what can only be described as seminars for each of the Audi Sport programmes. And, you know, obviously the R18 e Tron Quattro is the one the closest to our hearts here, together with the, uh, the R8 LMS, the, the new GT3 car. Uh, DTM, and that's got its uh, level of interest and some very interesting stuff coming out there in the, the short and medium term future as we move further and further towards harmonisation of the rules between uh, DTM and Super GT, for instance, and the Audi TT Cup. Mm. But the building itself, John, and I'm sure you'll get to see it sooner rather than later, is quite one of the most extraordinary things I've seen in motorsport. And the, the thing that, that honestly struck me throughout all of it and we're going to talk about the kind of the backdrop to this at a moment, I'm sure, is just how much their sporting heritage clearly means to them. Yes. There is not a workspace, there is not a workshop, there is not an office that does not have a trophy of some description in it. And then you get to the main, so the main, main meeting area there. And it's, it's you know, if, if Red Bull haven't got the trophies back yet, by the way, I think most of them are actually annoyed <laughs> Floor floor-to-ceiling trophies with front and centre um, the three massive, they're about six foot tall trophies um, awarded for Audi for the triple crown of three consecutive Le Mans wins. Uh, absolutely extraordinary sight. Uh, uh, an absolute privilege to be allowed to go there. But the icing on the cake, even more so than being given almost unfettered access to the uh, the 2015 Audi R18, of which more in a moment, was an absolute first. A lineup of all of the previous Audi Le Mans overall winners. Uh, line lined up for us as we walked the actual chassis i think the vast majority certainly wow. were my guess is that at least a couple of them were audi r8s with uh with the with body panels you know what i don't care it just looked <laughs> fantastic you know it, it really was you know it's this kind of emerging picture because we from our kind of vantage point in the customer center and by the way any listener is in the area of Neuburg, which is not a million miles away from Munich or Ingolstadt. If you fancy going to take a look, you can. There is a public restaurant in the Audi Customer Experience wow. Centre, which gives you which gives you a sight of the test track. You're not likely to see, you know, the DTM cars or the R18s out there. Ninety nine percent of the use of that track is for customer experience or for some road car testing. But please don't go, do go and have a look at it. It is an extraordinary sight, and you never know. You might just get a, a bit of a sniff of uh, something exciting, uh, including some of the heritage cars, which I believe are kept on site. But Graham, is this is, is this sort of a complimentary site to? The Audi Museum, which is awesome, uh, at Ingolstadt. This isn't replacing that. This is very much more motorsport based. It is. At, this is absolutely the home of Audi Sports. Right. Um, it replaces Ingolstadt, which is the it's, Ingolstadt's become one of those words you just use to, to explain something. It's been fielded by Ingolstadt. Ingolstadt, to be clear, thirty-four years ago was a supermarket. Mm. Um, 
they've adapted a supermarket site to be the place where everything that's, you know, more or less everything that's that I and you, John, and our listenership actually uh, understand about Audi Sport came from, in effect, an old Aldi is what it came from. <laughs> and they've adapted that site. Re- re- really, really, really Which was, was. nice because they, they only had to change one letter in the sign. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know it all came from a very cramped site. There, there are other sites as well. The Nikozum, where uh, the the genius of the of the engine design and manufacturer comes from, and that will still remain. By the way, the, the engine um, ah. manufacturing site will remain. Some of the development and testing though will move to Neuburg. In the process of moving to Neuburg and will be complete by, I believe, uh, June, July, is going to be the customer racing side. So that is Roman Liebchen and the, mm. the side of the business that deals with the RDR8 GT3. Um, and it, it's a magnificent place. And you know what? It deserves it. Because if you think now, John, it, it just needed that reminder, I guess, of that, 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 that line of, of cars to remind all of us that were there, just the extraordinary things that have happened with this team. And I was just blown away. It was it was great to be allowed to see it. Thank you very much for anybody from Audi Sport that's listening this evening, and I'm sure you are. Um, it was an absolute privilege. Very, very envious. We'll talk about some of those uh, projects in a little more detail uh, in the second half of tonight's programme. It's Midweek Motorsport. I'm John Hainoff. No Tim Gray uh, this week. Uh, and, uh, well, we've done the first hour, so it's time for this. Midweek Motorsport. There's still another hour of this nonsense. Well, if you are just joining us here on Midweek Motorsport, we're halfway through. Nick Damon already been through the prospects for Formula One and all the news of that. Graham Goodwin of DailySportsCar.com has been uh, talking about the ELMS test this week. You'll be able to hear all of that again if you download the podcast, which will be coming up as quickly as is humanly possible after this show. But in our number two, fingers crossed for Marshall Pruitt of Racer.com to join us to talk about Sebring. Also some IndyCar testing going on this week as well as we get close to St. Pete's and the first IndyCar race of the season. And Nick Damon will rejoin us as well. It was uh, World Superbikes first couple of rounds at the weekend, a brand new circuit, and he'll be talking about that. But next, a little more from Graham Goodwin. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com So welcome to the second half of the show. Graham Goodwin has stayed uh, on the line from down in the south of France. We were talking about Audi there just before the uh, half-time break. Graham, let's go through some of those projects you mentioned. The R18, and we need to rattle through these a little bit. The R18, um, well, what we did here last week is double the amount of megajoules. They now have four. They do indeed, uh, but I think actually whilst that's significant, of course, the more significant thing is the amount of attention that's been paid to the aero, and in particular, uh, some very trick suspension. Uh, it's the, uh, I don't know whether you call it FRIC or Frick suspension, the uh, the thing that was outlawed in Formula One, it's fitted now to the Audi. Uh, they've also taken some lessons again from Toyota in terms of intelligent braking systems, and there is a... As, I would say as revealed more, exclusively but unintentionally here on, on Radio Le Mans in a Toyota <laughs> Tech Talk, I seem to remember. There you go. But um, the, what I'd say about the Audi is bear in mind just how woefully off the, uh, the pace in terms of outright speed the car was at times at the end of last season, John, uh, is there is a remarkable amount of confidence about that new car. It does look the real deal. Um, 
the entire driver lineup, by the way, was fielded. Uh, I don't think we saw Lucas Degrassi, but everybody else, I think, was was on parade, including most of the DTM guys. Uh, it was, you know, a, a full parade for for us for, for that. So. I'm told, Graham, that whilst testing, they broke the LMP1 lap record at Sebring. It's unofficial, of course. I, I don't know if they were wanting to talk about that, but that's the kind of difference that we're talking about. Now, we know that lap speed is one thing. Over a single lap is one thing. We don't know how much of the boost they're using. That could be qualified pace, and, and how you develop over a longer run is, is something else entirely. But I do get the feeling from what you've said and what other people have said that they feel they're onto something for this car. And I think if if nothing else, they believe they've got the opportunity to compete on pace or around what they expect the pace to be, without having to worry about other people, uh, other people having issues or the demise of cars. Uh, I think that's absolutely correct, John. The other thing I can tell you about that test at Sebring is they tell us, that, and I have no reason at all to doubt them, that they completed a full Le Mans distance in that test at Sebring. Car. Oh my goodness! At Sebring, okay. which is pretty extraordinary. And I, whilst they didn't say without problem. Uh, they completed they completed that in remarkably short order, so I think that's very good in terms of uh, in terms of an indication of just how prepared the guys are for what lies ahead with the WEC. Because I think we're all expecting this this year's WEC to take another step forward. No, I agree, and I think they are too. So, um, very good reason to be optimistic about the the racing being of a very high order again uh, this coming year. Uh, what else to say? Uh, well, Lena Gade was there on uh, on parade and uh, fettling the car with a uh, happy band. Uh, unfortunately for Lena, I think had a bit of a, 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 a slip on ice. I think ice skating from what I've been hearing has uh, broken a wrist, but it wasn't stopping her from um, well, uh, let's put it this way. I think if she was in the military, she'd be the sergeant major you didn't want. Yep. Um, she, she certainly does keep a very tight ship there and and boy, does it show. Car looked great. Looked great. It looks slightly less boxy uh, than the uh, the previous car. Some very trick aero indeed. I was with Sam Collins. He was very impressed with what we were being told. We had a fantastic presentation on that car from Chris Renker and from uh, the new technical director at Audi Sports uh, as well. And it was, uh, all in all, uh, quite the most rem- remarkably open display um, of you know a cutting edge LMP2. All right, so that's uh, the LMP1. Let, let's quickly run. Uh, uh, let me quickly do the other two. I want to f- finish off with some uh, GT3 news. Um, TTRS Cup, very interesting, not least for me because um, there are six cars at the back of the field reserved for legends, celebrities, and members of the media, and I'm desperate to get a run in these. But these are proper race cars, 18 cars uh, sold for the full season and supporting the DTM. Uh, correct, absolutely, and uh, it's, it's we get the six, twelve, and twenty-four. I think are the numbers, right. and it's uh, six race meetings, twelve races, twenty-four drivers. Absolutely right, we'll be seeing some Audi legends aboard those cars. They weren't telling us yet which of those Audi legends it would be, but uh, I think we can expect that we might see some of our favourite Le Mans drivers at some point driving the little Audi TT. It does look a little weapon. I've uh, driven an Audi since so 1988, 89. Does that make me an Audi legend? I might be able to get in on uh, that. Well, a legend. I mean, obviously you're a legend, John. Is it lunchtime? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it my lunchtime? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think 
you know, again, it's one make racing. It's going to have its fans. It's going to have its detractors. But they're clearly extremely serious about this being a potential breeding ground for GT racing. And that was the question I was going to ask. I had a word with McNish over the weekend, and he's done some of the test and development work on the car. Uh, One of the few Audi luminaries that weren't uh, at the uh, event, he was sent to Sebring to do the ambassadorial rules and he says they're a pretty handy little car in road trim and in race trim they are properly engineered so is that what we really think is happening graham that they are going to look at these mostly young drivers coming through this and see if there's any potential for them in the in the gt3s or the prototype ranks oh hell yes Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, because it's very clear that Audi, uh, together with a, uh, a number of the other factories, are, are seeing now, because of the, the major events that feature GT3 machinery, where they've got a very credible contender, and that's clearly where we're coming next, um, is that they've got the opportunity there to uh, tap into markets they didn't have before. A very large number of uh, nations involved indeed in terms of the drivers they are going to be driving those cars in TT Cup and that of course means that they get a little bit more reach in terms of their media value for the cars that they're fielding in the bigger races so might we see uh, remarkably young men from and women hopefully from some of those uh, additional markets in the coming years I think we might well might and if that's the only reason that they're actually backing it then that's, that's fine by me we'd, we'd love to see new talent coming forward uh, the other Breeding ground for talent uh, for Audi, in common with one or two other German manufacturers, has latterly been DTM. Although, in fairness, that's often been seen as a platform to Formula One. Well, that little avenue of pleasure has been bricked up for potential DTM stars, with DTM sadly garnering no points whatsoever in terms of qualification for a super license Uh, DTM is still a massive part of what Audi do both in terms of their activation and how much financially they invest in it Graham so what's the future of DTM well it's fair to say that the conversation I had with uh, Dieter Gash who looks after uh, the DTM side of Audi Sport now focused principally around this kind of growth towards harmonisation of regulations between Super GT and uh, and DTM uh, for much of the, the, the talk of a dinner and again the, the kind of the presentation we had had Sam Collins by my, uh, by my shoulder uh, pushed it uh, get in that direction just to remind listeners that the, there is a common chassis now between DTM and Super GT that happened this year and we're moving towards a position where uh, the Super GT cars of course have now got the, the Ford the turbo engines uh, the Audi, the uh, the Audi's Mercedes and BMW are still with V8s but moving towards the Ford the turbo uh, uh, platform in I think it's two years time isn't it mm. uh, engines are currently I believe on the bench in single cylinder formats uh, at Audi Sport is what they told us um, there is one restricting factor to the question which will be on everybody's lips, which is when are we going to see uh, joint races between the two? And the, the difference there is a commercial one and actually a bit of a philosophical one, uh, which is to do with tyres. Yeah. DTM runs on spec anchor rubber and Super GT is one of the last great bastions of an absolute all-out tyre war. Bonkers tyre war, make yeah. things different. 
bonkers tyre war. And the problem beyond that is it's not quite as simple as having a race that we all agree that they're being races of Hancock's because very many of those efforts are so much for tyre war the teams themselves are funded by the tyre. Yes, companies. yes. However, that being said, um, there is clearly appetite um, in Neuburg uh, to find a solution to that. There's a little way to go before that happens. Where might that happen? Well, therein lies the tale. Um, I'm not going to tell too many tales before the story is written, but uh, I do know that this particular, there's a particular track in the United States that Dieter Cash, for instance, would Excellent. like to see the cars duking it out. So, um, it, but if, you know, in terms of what might we see in the US, US DTM, as far as I'm concerned, is more or less dead. I don't think we're going to see that. No, it's dead, yeah. Uh, the, there is certainly a negotiation and conversation live, though, with the US manufacturer about doing a car of that ilk. Um, beyond that, might we start to see the opportunity for uh, German makes to join Super GT? Yes, I think you know, John, as I do, that there was every prospect we might have seen a BMW there yeah. uh, this year. That's not happened yet. Uh, we might certainly, I think Audi would be keen just to have a look at any avenue commercially for that to happen with one of their cars. Would the the Japanese makes be uh, be welcomed in the DTM? Oh hell yes! So I think there are interesting days coming. The restricting factor of full harmonisation, though, is that philosophy around the tyres. Uh, and finally, GT3, Graham, uh, the new car we've seen in, in several pictures. The white one looks to me like Stormtrooper's helmet, uh, the Imperial Stormtrooper's helmet from Star Wars. I think it looks fantastic. Lots of changes, more under the skin, a uh, little bit of aero rather than anything that we might have seen uh, in terms of engine development, etc. It's still going to have the V10 at least to start with. But what we weren't sure until uh, this week, Graham, was, was what was going to be happening with the... Uh, last week, excuse me, was what was going to be happening with this cars, where Audi was going to be racing. We kind of thought we knew where they were going to debut the car, but we all know all of that now. So quick synopsis and bullet point of that. Quick synopsis is uh, customer cars will be next year. This year is a development phase. So it will be certainly the factory-blessed teams, particularly W Racing Team, Van Son Vosses, uh, Belgian Racing Team, and Phoenix Racing. Uh, there will be two centrepieces for this season, 24-hour races at Spa and at the Nürburgring. So happily, John, will get to see those cars. Uh, what we also now know is a result of what uh, Romelu Liebschen actually shared with us uh, last week is that uh, there will be a lead-in to those 24-hour races with the cars racing both in the Blompan Endurance Series, two of the first three rounds. Sadly for UK uh, racegoers, it won't include Silverstone. It will be Monza and Paul Ricard, which is a 1,000-kilometre race. Nice. Uh, I believe two cars for Monza, one in the hands of either team, and four cars for Paul Ricard. It will be similar uh, outing uh, for the VLM, where you have to actually field the car before it races yes. at the big rig, 24 hours, uh, but with a galaxy of stars from all over the uh, the the kind of the the Audi family, including Mike Rockefeller, Nico Muller from DTM, Marcel Fesler, and Rennie Rass from the P1 program, will all Brilliant. form part of it. Uh, it's going to be a great program. The car in the the Audi corporate scheme that we saw in Neuburg. Just looks stunning. I'm very envious. Um, interestingly, came up in an interview with the head of motorsport in the US, Tristan. Um, he was saying that they expect their customers' cars, the new GT3 Audi uh, R8s, are 
in September or October in plenty of time to pay, for people to get them get them tested before they have to go to, to the raw. And also, there's no reason why the 137, yes, 137 uh, that they built of the old car might not be equaled or surpassed because it would seem, from what I've heard from the US, that there is a quite disorderly queue, actually, queuing up at Audi of America wanting to buy these cars ostensibly, obviously, for World Challenge, uh, where they're uh, already racing. But, of course, GT3, full house GT3, allowed for the first time in IMSA competition. And with the Porsche GT3 car still somewhere off and yet to break cover in any way, shape or form, it would seem that uh, Audi and Aston Martin are making hay as far as customers are concerned. Yeah, and you know, I think at the end of the day, it's it, it is a uh, we've heard from at least one team, and I expect to hear from at least one more uh, that you know, the the uh, the current inability for Porsche to produce um, a competitive proposition uh, with the GT three R. We talked, I know, previously on the show about the, the the route they're taking has been we believe pretty conservative. It's an upgrading again of the current platform. We know that that's got its problems in terms of. Uh, in terms of a number of aspects of the way the car performs in whatever conditions, uh, and it's beginning to lose some customers. And you know, I just wonder whether or not uh, uh, Porsche Motorsport have have perhaps uh, had time to reassess and determine whether or not they're being perhaps a little bit too conservative. You know, we got uh, that stunning-looking Mercedes-Benz uh, AMG GT3 coming. Uh, there are other cars uh, certainly on the stocks. Um, it's going to be. I think a very interesting 12 months ahead with GT3 racing. Graham, thanks very much. I'm very envious of your travels in the last week. I'll see you at the weekend, and uh, you can be envious about me at Sebring, and we'll share that envy over a nice glass of red. Absolutely. Look forward to it, John. Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, joining us from the south of France. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. Uh, nearest makes no difference, quarter past the hour. Let's go back to Nick Damon, if we can, uh, if I can find him on here. Nick, where have you gone? There he is. And uh, let's see if we can get Nick Damon back up from uh, his secret location. Uh, and this time we're going to talk to Nick about not four wheels, but two. Good evening again, Nick. Hello there. That worked worked better than I expected. Um, interesting stuff from from Graham there, and very envious of his visit to Audi, but that just means that we'll go when there's not 70 other people there, and we'll have the place to ourselves, which I think... And is. Yes, exactly, because we're special. Yes, in, a, in every... So, yes, so in many ways. so many ways. Um Superbikes at the weekend yes. at a brand new circuit, Buriram, which you seemed somewhat um, surprised at when when we talked about it recently. Uh, if yeah. you're in the UK and you haven't seen it yet, uh, you might want to go and make a cup of tea here. The highlights are on Channel 4 on Saturday morning, half hour show, uh, and no Charlie Webster this week. She's on other different duties, so I'm doing the presentation for that uh, in the in the UK on that half hour show. So if you don't know and you don't want to know and you haven't got access to satellite, um, step away for about five minutes from now. Right, they've gone now, Nick. So, um, this is, this the is like making the present for aunties and mums on Blue Peter, isn't it? Yes, Christmas. It is. You're crackling just a little bit. You might just want to turn yourself down I at your end. Myself, how's that? That's much better. Just getting a little bit of over mod there. Um, oh, it, the the British contingent continued to dominate. This has been uh, it's been unbelievable start to the season. Another 
pair of well, one one race one was one two three, and race two was one two three four for the Brits, mm. which uh, I really uh, can't remember. Um, a little bit to do with the fact that uh, Sylvain Ginturi uh, has changed from his world champion, of course, the Frenchman. He's a very Anglified French. He lives in England. Uh, uh, he's changed from Aprilia to Honda and is just getting up to speed. That's still fourth in championship overall. But yeah, I mean, it is just Brits, you know, beating other Brits. Which Brits could win this one? I don't know. It's uh, you know, it was, it was uh, a win for uh, two wins for Johnny Ray. Uh, on the Kawasaki, uh, Leon Hasman on back on the Aprilia after some trials and tribulations, a couple of other bikes where people were kind of beginning to doubt whether he actually had it. it was backed up with another couple of podiums, and it was a great race. It was an interesting race. I mean, I think uh, one thing I must say, having watched it, um, absolute plus points was the crowd. There was a genuine crowd there. You know, yeah, I was going to ask you. Circuit but... of the Americas, take note. That's actually people at a track. Right. Okay. First of all, what was the track? Was it raced in, in under lights again? No, 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 no. It was a, a, a day track. It was a little bit dull. I did think that the... I get the impression that it's... It, this is, is, is me watching, OK? I get the impression it's not in a very attractive part of Thailand because all the shots are really tight. close up yeah. and tight. And you're thinking, obviously the background's not great. One of the backgrounds is a road, which is fine. I always quite like tracks with this because cars go past not interesting on a road. You can see in the background. Yeah, somebody on the way to Tesco is being passed by a, 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 super, a super bike at 200 miles an hour. Tes- of course, there are Tesco's in... Well, there were until recently there were Tesco's in, uh, in uh, Thailand. Other supermarkets yeah, but- are available. Not in Thailand. Okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, but, it, it, you know, there was a really proper number of people turned up. And it wasn't, you know, it, so they, got, they got a crowd. It's not obviously, it's a little bit way away from uh, Bangkok. It's out, out in the sticks a little bit. Um, I guess, you know, it was obviously sticky and hot because that's what it's like the whole time in the, in the tropics. But the track itself looked, you know, it looked dull. It may, you know, it looked like a modern circuit. There was nothing, there wasn't much a, a gradient change to make it exciting. But, you know, it was it was fine. The racing was pretty good. It was a, you know, it's, a, it's been a well-designed circuit, it's a very safe circuit, and um, you know the, the thing was the caught your attention was the, the locals had turned up, and once again we have proven that if it's uh, as really has been the case from superbikes from from World One, that incredible conundrum that motorcycle fans can't answer, in that why is it that the Brits can consistently produce a uh, you know, an absolute, you know, kind of conveyor belt of talent that can win world superbike races, both when it was a strong series and now when it's not quite so strong. Hmm. But we don't get a sniff of anything doing much in Grand Prix racing bikes. Yeah. Um, the, the tracks seem to provide decent racing. You mentioned Sylvain uh, Gintoli. He started from the back from one of the races. Um, I, what, did, what did he do? Did he drop it on the warm-up lap or something? Uh, it, was, it was down to, down to problems in, in Qualifying in Super Bowl, there was much hilarity that he got roundly beaten by uh, Troy Bayliss, who um, improved again was guest well, uh, subbing on the Ducati mm. from uh, for the injured. And I'm now I said the word the injured, and I can't remember the, the life injured Ducati they, rider, injured other Ducati rider. Yeah, that that injury bloke. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and he improved from the thirteenth and the sixteenth in the first round in his home to I think a ninth and the seventh. He actually got ninth and eleventh, but he actually finished eighth in the first and then got penalised one place for a, a yellow flag infringement. Uh, and then he retired, not from the race, uh, from 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 superbike racing properly. Right. Okay. So he announced his actual retirement. At oh, the really? Of, so, yes. He's uh, he basically decided he was eighth and eleventh after being thirteenth and sixteenth. He said he loves racing, uh, and he's fit. But that's it now. He's going to let the younger boys have a go. He have fun. He wanted to do two events. He said, and he's retired. Uh, has well, but is the chap that he's um, 
It's David Tapitiano, yeah. Is, yeah. is he going to be fit for the next round then? Or no, because he did three vertebrae. Yeah, he? exactly. He's, so, no, I don't think it's Troy's basically decided. I, I assume he doesn't want to go where the next race is. He's, 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 he's probably thinking, I've, I've proven a point. And he has. He's proven a point that, you know, he's, despite you know, the age, it, an age really is a limiting factor in motorcycle racing. You, know, you can go a lot, you, you can last a lot longer at the top driving uh, in cars than you can in, in motorcycles. It's much more physical and it's more the the injuries just build up and build up and build up really it gets kind of cumulative nature you know it's, it's remarkable what, what Rossi's doing at 35 and you think what uh, Bates is doing at 42 it's, it's, it's beyond remarkable obviously I don't know what do where, where you go from remarkable astounding there we are mm. astounding and I'm pretty certain that if he had if he had done the whole season he'd have been up on the podium because he, yeah, he had a couple of years off he's working himself into a new car new, in fact he's moving forward you know five places in each race from his home track he knew to a track he didn't know um you kind of think, well, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's obviously getting his, his eye back in again. Perhaps he was worried he's getting his eye back in again and decided to, to force himself to stop. Well, that's, I suppose that's one, that's one thing. As you say, he didn't do any of the pre-season testing, and, and that's uh, worth, you know, it's probably worth another couple of three tenths a lap, probably, probably more of that. Yeah, I think yeah, he's been out here for a couple of years. He obviously he's rides bikes all the time, but it's it's a t- it's, it's, yeah, it's a tough series. Um, another series that isn't what it was, and uh, but you know he's still providing very good entertainment. Um, but you kind of you kind of need to. I think it needs a rebrand. It needs a relaunch. It needs to find its face, its feet a little bit more. I think I discussed this before. It needs to find a way of of getting those local wild cards. In from the local series in the various countries, and that's what brings the crowds in and brings the interest. Um, so, at the top of the championship table, if I remember correctly uh, from looking at the graphics and my script, then uh, Johnny Ray leads Liam Haslam by, I think, 10 points. They've mm-hmm. shared the four races this year. How long can this British domination last at the top of? Well, well, have we locked out every podium so far? I think I really think it's a brilliant question. I think one of the one of the third places wasn't British. Well, the real thing is you have to look at it. Is that when you look down the list of, dri- of riders, if you once you go past Silver and Gintura, you think, well, actually no, mm. um, because Marco Belanger obviously is rather you know, sulkily been told he has to go to. Uh, uh, MotoGP this year didn't want to do so he's the, obviously one of the, the major people who could take points I mean, there's been a kind of a changing of the guard you, you know I'll read out fourth is Jordi Torres who is you know, the number two to, to Haslam is in fifth it's Chaz Davis and Alex Lowe's two more Brits and then you know it's kind of people who are bringing up the you know the Brit who are always going to be people who will be in the bottom end of the top ten so effectively seven of the top the top Top seven, five of them are British. One of them, yeah, yeah which probably going to continue until Sivan gets his act together. And even then, you, you'd be an absolute madman to bet against a British champion. And probably quite unlikely to be anyone apart from John, Johnny Ray. Uh, unless Leon gets a run of results, of course. Yeah, I mean... He's the problem is, if, even if he well. wins, yeah, even if he wins, the likelihood is Johnny will be second. And... The points differential for that, it's going to take him a while now that he's got that 10 points. Um, mm. the, uh, I mean, he was five points ahead, wasn't he, but just from uh, the two rounds. Long gap, by the way, five weeks, wasn't it, between <laughs> Phillip Island and this one. First time there's been a World Superbike race in, in Thailand. But I, I, I just, I'm kind of hoping that someone gets involved so that it doesn't just become 
because if we're not careful, Johnny will just ease away four or five points every yeah. every round, and and then the spectacle that we'd hoped for, whilst each race in itself might look quite good, the championship will very quickly slip away. It's hard. It's interesting. One of the things about the the, the MotoGP scoring system, and also sorry, the, the, the general Dawner scoring system. Sorry, and, and also the fact that you have two races. Um, it's, and, and you have a limited amount of win, it's quite hard to get a long way away. And if you, as you say, if you eke out five points, five points, five points, it takes one non-finish. And that's 25 that's on the other way. True. Now, obviously, that can happen to anybody. Um, but it is a system that tends, combined with motorcycling's unpredictable, and the fact that you do get tracks which really suit other, other machines. So you will get to a track, and I, I'm not up to date enough with what goes well, where yet, where, you know, you'll find that there'll be an Aprilla track. And just, the Kawasaki sit there going, well, I don't understand that, because <laughs> it just happens. I was told off for calling it Aprilia today and told that uh, I had to say Aprilia. Really? Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, I didn't even be on a motorcycle linguistics course. Wow. And, of course, the, 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 uh, the, the big show starts this weekend, of course. Yes, because MotoGP is, where's their first round? That's it. Qatar and the lights. Qatar and the lights. That's what I was Which uh, means sale. sort of 12 hours after Malaysia, which would be under rain. Yes, that that's very true. Um, uh, right, let's talk. Let's talk about that, and then I've got a couple of questions from the collector for you about Formula yeah. One that we didn't answer earlier on. Voice mm-hmm. us. Um, so, Qatar this weekend under lights, which is an event I love, and mm-hmm. I'm pleased you've reminded me. I'll it is the event that high definition television was built for. Oh, do you know what? High def actually makes that look so good. It looks like a video game. Mm. It looks so, like a video game. They pop so much. I must set the TV off. We're four K. We're four K, which is a couple of years away. Yeah. Um, so, what are we expecting to see this weekend? Um, I don't think we're going to see anything that's particularly representative of what we'll see in the season as a whole. Oh, uh, really? The Yamaha's struggled and the Ducati shined in the test of Qatar, whereas uh, the second, the, the other two tests which were held in Malaysia, uh, uh, it was much more the running order as usual, which was a mm. kind of a, you know, a nip and tuck a few hundreds between Honda and Yamaha with Ducati in third. Um, it would be lovely to think that Ducati has sorted their tyre woes out um, and can be fast over the whole 45 minutes and not just five or six laps. They've made big strides, Um yeah, you, you again. You have to say that it's it's going to be a Marquez win. Um, yeah. Yamaha now have got their seamless gearbox, so they'll sound great on the onboards as well. Um, yeah. So I think it's 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 it, it probably going to be twenty five points for Marquez. A Yamaha on the uh, probably on a podium as well, and then the third place it toss up between you know whether Pedrosa's having a good day or a bad day, where we can see a Ducati knocking knocking something in. But uh, it doesn't really set much of a seen for the whole race it's a very it's a unique uh, situation and a unique track with a new and uh, but it is a very very good season opener i think uh oh no i agree and of course depending on where you are in the world there's a, they move it to the dark so that it's a bit more european uh friendly of course Did seven I... o'clock in the uk seven o'clock in the uk morning so, no evening no, no. Evening, prime time. Perfect. Uh, did um, did I read somewhere that the last day of the MotoGP test was actually rained off? It certainly was. It was. Where was that? A- Qatar. No, no. Uh, well, it's rain. Hang on. It's, didn't it rain in Qatar one time before uh, when the race was on? Yeah. You do get rain. It's in the desert in this time of year occasionally. 
Um, and they have to be so careful, of course, because the way the lights shine on the track, the rain, if you get rain on your visor, it's really, really difficult to see where you're going. Scott Redding's on a factory spec bike for the first time, the British youngster. Um, he's been telling anyone who wants to listen, and a few people who probably didn't, that his sights are set on a podium for his first season on that factory spec bike. Can he do it? Problem is, is that if Ducati got their act together, then there are six bikes uh, which are going to fill the first six places normally. Then you've got Cal Crutchlow for a seventh bike, and you've got the Spargaros as well. So you're saying, all right, he's got a, six of those have a problem. Mm. Regardless so, of- so probably not. But it's a, it's a, it's, it's a. You know, he set himself a goal, and you've got to do that, I suppose. And it, it wouldn't do him any harm if he did get one. Uh, and, he, and his factory Honda is not the same as Marquez's and uh, Pedrosa's, of course. Really? No, no. no it's, it's a couple of couple of ticks behind. Mm. Okay. Uh, Nick, once again, just getting a bit scratchy there. So thank you very much for uh, staying on uh, and doing a bit on MotoGP for us this evening. And hopefully we'll be a bit more back to normal, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> Next week, you make a very nice steak tonight, and uh, I did. Thanks. I did some of my um, my my signature uh, uh, creamy pepper sauce to go with it. So sorry, about yeah, that. that's great. Just tell me now. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks. Cheers, mate. Uh, Nick Derman joining us tonight for MotoGP Superbikes as well as F1. Oh, Formula One. No, I've got to ask you. The, let's say I nearly, I nearly got rid of you because we're waiting on Marshall. I'm still here. Still here. Excellent. A um, couple of people asking on the collective. The big question, never mind about Alonso, what's happening with Marussia? Will they get the car started in Malaysia or will it be another embarrassing... No, we're here. We're here. We're here. Here's the car for scrutineering. Uh, look, it's all there. It's all... Tick the box so that... You know, tick the thing so mm-hmm. that we can get the money. I think you'll find the answer is if there's been some money, there'll be some honey. Mm. No money, no honey. So you don't think they'll even turn a lap? No, they paid the money to uh, variety the software development. They'll, 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 they'll fire up. Simple as that. This is this is a check based issue, and I don't mean Thomas Inga. Okay. Uh, all right, Nick. We will let you go this time. Cheers, Hang mate. On. Cheers, mate. Thank you, Nick Dehman, joining us tonight for so many different things that I almost let him go uh, without call without uh, doing the questions you'd asked on the collective. I'm pushing my computers quite hard uh, this evening, so apologies um, if we're not getting through the collective, but you seem to be having a good chat uh, on your own there. Uh, And with any luck now, we should be able to say hello to Marshall Pruitt of Racer.com. Hello, MP. My fellow brother with uh, a dense sports car beard. Yes, it's, it's it, mate. That's it. That's where we are. I should have done this years ago. I've really got into it now. Um, uh, good evening. Welcome along. Uh, we've got about uh, half an hour of the show left, so plenty of time to do a bit of talking about St. Pete's at the moment. We're not, I don't think, going to be able to do a full preview uh, in that time, but I do want to talk about IndyCar, but it would be remiss of me not to talk a wee bit about uh, Sebring at the weekend. A Sebring that I think delivered. Um, I will not hear anybody pointing the finger at BOP. DPs ran away with it. LMP2 can't win. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. First three, uh, three out of the first four on the grid 
were P2 cars. The fast lap of the race was a P2 car. And when you've got P2 cars spurring off into walls and making mistakes and spending eight laps in the pits, uh, and kudos, by the way, at the Crone guys for doing the spending laps in the pits and then coming out and continuing and not dropping a single extra lap to the leader. And we get a finish at the end, which is all right. It's a lap. But a lap at Sebring's 3.74 miles. The, the, the margin of victory is just over two minutes in, in 12 hours. A few years ago, we'd have been trumpeting that uphill and down deal, wouldn't we, Marshall? Yeah, if we're talking Daytona prototype versus P2, not a lot to complain about in terms of BOP if you're uh, maybe on the side of those who uh, wanted to see the P2s win uh, a bit more or be over-advantaged uh, mm. compared to under-advantaged. Yeah, as, as we saw, Heinde, you know, roughly, if I, I seem to recall, Ollie Plaw's fast lap was, what, half a second, six-tenths of a second race lap, I should say, better than the best DP. So the potential was there for a P2, 1-2 uh, at least, if not 1-2-3-4, had the uh, HPD uh, open-top cars uh, been able to survive. Uh, so yeah, the potential was there, Heine. Uh, we could have uh, could have certainly left Sebring with a, a an even 1-1 one, one split mm. among DPs and P2s in terms of wins this year. Just, I want to pick out uh, a couple of stories there. Action Express, they Absolutely executed perfectly. On a car that we found out partway through the race, Xiao Barbosa thought he'd lost uh, the ability certainly to tune the front end with that car because he thought he broke the front anti-roll bar, the front sway bar. And certainly when Seabass was driving it, it seemed to have a lot of push, but that just didn't bother him at all. He Between those stints between uh, Barbosa and... Uh, and Seabus is when the track came to the car. My goodness, they used it to their advantage and put a lap on the field. Yeah, kind of silly, wasn't it? So, speaking with Seb after the race, they believe what happened is Joao went to make an adjustment and the adjuster itself essentially locked in place, which uh. is a little different than, say, the uh, anti-roll bar failing or something else. Uh, but, yeah, long story short, the, the belief was, at least after the race, was that the anti-roll bar adjuster had stuck in a position that uh, fed way too much understeer uh, to the front of the car. And yeah, I think as we mentioned during the race, Heidi, having Sebastian Bourdais as the guy climbing in to do the lion's share of work in an understeering car uh, could not have asked for a better uh, driver and handling um, scenario. At the same time, Seb also said, look, yeah, I love understeer, but there are limits to that. <laughs> and uh, the, let's just say that the car exceeded his uh, ability to handle that understeer. It was kind of funny. Uh, he, he just said, uh, you know, basically, uh, when I climbed in the car, uh, frankly, this is when he went and put uh, the entire field lap down. So this is another thing that's somewhat remarkable is that adjuster issue happened uh, right before Joao got out of the car. And I think Joao, after he passed Scott Dixon for the lead at 5.42 or so, mm-hmm. he stayed in the car till 6.01. So he wasn't in there for a whole lot longer. But non- uh, nonetheless, he dealt with it the best that he could, pulled out a lead. Uh, Sebastian climbed in the car. And then so during <laughs> Seb's stint, where he took over from Joao, put a lap on the field. The car's understeer, uh, he admitted, was beyond even something he was really uh, able to deal with and, and described uh, turning the car was a bit more like hurting it towards the apex <laughs> and where he wanted it to go than actual steering it. So uh, uh, long story short, 
just an amazing thing to realize. And then as he also, uh, you know, he confided in me earlier in the week at Barber Motorsports Park for the IndyCar test that he had had a nasty go-karting crash, um, landed, uh, got thrown out of the cart, landed flat wow. on his back, and did some very serious damage to his ribs and was in significant pain at Barber. Uh, and then imagine you know, all that time in the car and a big heavy DP pounding around the roughest track in North America. Uh, he was certainly enduring some uh, uh, physical uh, limitations of his own, as was Scott Pruitt, who uh, if you remember, was his uh, main protagonist when he went and put that lap down. That was against Pruitt in the uh, Ganassi Ford. And Pruitt, although you know he's definitely not one to want to make any excuses, uh, it w- was certainly seemingly known within the team that Scott was dealing with either a cold or a flu or something. So between uh, not my brother having some sort of illness and uh, Bourdais, you know, with ribs that, you know, he almost thought they were broken after that crash. And you had two guys who were in pretty rough shape mm-hmm. yet attacked the track without mercy. So that was a pleasure to watch. Uh, let's take some positives out of it. Uh, only the second time ever a Chevrolet engine has won, and it was 50 years to the event uh, that that happened to Jim Hall's Chaparral back in 65. We talked with Chuck Tressing about odd things happening on the fives, controversy, fairy stories, talking points, uh, on any year that ends in a five at Sebring. Not only that, but uh, Chevrolet locked out uh, the overall podium. We'll talk about GTLM in a moment, and I spoke with uh, with Jan Magnussen, and we'll hear that interview in uh, a little while as well. But I, I do want to take some positives out of the P2 situation. Michael Shank still getting to grips by the team's own admission with the car. Got a lot out of that car. The Crone effort I've mentioned, I thought that was outstanding. And I've got to say, the ESM guys, from dusting off those cars, from them being you know, basically under a dust sheet in the garage about to do who knows what when they came back from Shanghai at the back end of last year. You know, it showed that maybe they, those cars hadn't had a run out and a, and a proper shakedown. They had a few niggly little problems, but you couldn't deny the pace of those cars. And without those issues, they would have been contenders. Absolutely. I just send uh, Ryan Dial a little bit of a uh, an apology. Yeah, I'm an idiot text after qualifying because <laughs> I saw him a couple hours before and I just said, made it feel bad for you because, you know, had things gone the way they should have, you should be here vying for the pole, vying for the win, at least knowing you have the equipment that is capable uh, of earning a top finish. And he, you know, kind of looked at uh, the uh, ARX 03B said, nah, I wouldn't count us out, mate. And I kind of said, all right, well, you know, at, at least you're optimistic. <laughs> and uh, then, then he almost grabs the pole. So I had to send him a text going, yeah, so just disregard everything I said, please. Um, yeah, that was that was a great, I don't know if surprise is the word. Uh, he certainly wasn't surprised, but that was great to see for them. I feel so bad continue to feel so bad for the ESM team uh, from the mechanics to the owners on down. Everyone is just bleary-eyed from working a million hours from late 2014 into this season and seemingly nothing has gone right. So of all the teams to go through what they went through, Hindy, 
to have one HPD out with a turbo failure, the other one out with a suspension issue. Uh, that was too bad. They certainly could have uh, been in with a, with a shot there for sure. Shank, those guys, uh, I definitely think uh, the the engine issue, which forced them to nearly miss qualifying, uh, it's, that's really seemed to set their entire event back up to that up to that point it seemed like they Big were going hit. to be uh, one of the strongest ones in the field but yeah mike uh, spoke to mike on monday and he said uh, they could have the car back together they should be testing today at sebring said that hit altogether uh, will probably end up costing them around about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars so yeah a uh, not an inexpensive day for some, and uh, I'll tell you, for, for all the speed and all the BOP work and otherwise that was done in the top class, uh, definitely, I'll, I know I'll look back at Sebring 2015 and just rue what could have been and what should have been a strong fight between uh, both types of cars. Um, I haven't really got time to discuss the PC and the GTD now. Suffice to say, Tom Kimber-Smith and the rest of their team did a, another great job. I know everybody thought it was a bit lucky that they uh, won at uh, Daytona. Great race-long battle uh, with the guys who were in second in GTD. Looked like nobody wanted to win it at one stage, and you've got to feel for the Viper guys, uh, that engine problem right at the end. But by the same token... Um, just brilliant, brilliant stuff for Alex Job, who must have thought they were out of it with not very long to go. Probably talk about that in a bit more detail in, in later weeks uh, when I've had time to properly uh, digest it. Um, in the uh, in the GTLM category, uh, it looked like it was all Porsches and then it all went horribly wrong for them. Spoke to Jan Magnussen uh, earlier in the week and uh, caught up with him at his uh, home in Denmark. And the first question I asked him was uh, whether he was enjoying the win, whether it had sunk in, and uh, how he felt about the victory. I'm feeling fantastic. Thanks. And so you should. That was a very, very good race, top to bottom. It was a proper endurance race again, though, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, It was uh, pretty similar to Daytona, really, with... uh with the pace all through the race, uh, the, the balance of performance in, uh, in GTLM right now is so close that, you know, you just have to go for it this, uh, all the 12 hours. <laughs> there's, no, there's no relaxing, there's no running out the clock, there's just sprint about the finish. Great, great race right from the start um, with the Corvettes and... The Porsches, all three of the Porsches, actually, because the Falcon Porsche showed a pretty decent turn of speed yeah. uh, as well. Uh, obviously, the two works Porsches had issues at the end, but you guys were in a pretty pretty decent position with a couple of hours of uh, sort of go, particularly on the pit stop strategy, Jan. Absolutely. No, we had uh, we knew that uh, with about two hours to go, that definitely we had a strategy that would allow us to do just one extra stop, uh, and we knew uh, that. Both Porsches and the Ferrari have to do three. So, uh, so you know, a, a safety car would have messed that plan up. But it, at, that, at that time, it, we knew it was looking good for us. Because uh, we, we didn't really have the all-out pace. I think when the Porsches went for it, they were a good three, four tenths faster than us. So, uh, had, had the, uh, you know, not, um, in a normal strategy, uh, they'd have probably beaten us. But it was good. It was a really good call from the Corvid engineers to... Save some fuel with a couple hours to go. The qualifying session in the middle of the day 
where the track was so hot and it was so slippery. I actually tipped the Porsches for Paul. I didn't think they'd do it in such um, well dominating fashion, but I just felt that they would have a better balance on the track where people were sliding around. But as the track cooled down in the race, you guys found your pace, found your pace yep, again, sure. and it yeah. looked it looked pretty good after that. The balance of the car looked. Really good. The worst thing you can do, I'm told, at Sebring is try and chase the track. You've got to let the track come to the car. Is that right? Oh, for sure. Uh, for sure. Qualifying is always a really difficult uh, session at Sebring because it is in the heat of the day and it's uh, probably six hours uh, where you haven't been on the track. So you go, you have final practice uh, quite early in the day when it's cool and then you go into qualifying in the heat of the day. And that really, really makes it difficult. But I think everybody did a fantastic job it was a lot faster than I thought it was going to be uh, just because it was so hot um, so it seems like everybody's done their homework yeah now um, you three now um, you and your two teammates have now won 36 hours of racing in Florida because yeah. you did the, yeah. the Rolex Daytona <laughs> and the Sebring 12 hours back to back I can't find that being done for quite some time obviously because of the fact the season the series haven't been together I think it's going yeah. back all the way to maybe 2001 or somewhere uh, somewhere like I that. So. That's a pretty, yeah, no, pretty uh, decent uh, I run. Think, I think uh, the, actually back then, I think it was the uh, the three car from Corvette that did that as well. I, I that's, what I, that's what I found out as well. It was a pretty, yeah. good, pretty good weekend for you guys. Now, oh, okay. Daytona, Sebring, mm, there is another race in June. Um, are you having yeah. the same driving uh, talent in the car at that race? Yes, exactly. Oh, my goodness. For, 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 for us, you know, uh, Le Mans is, that is it for the year. That's the crown jewel. That's everything we work for. So, obviously, having had great success at these two endurance uh, races in the beginning of the year just sets us up really well for, for Le Mans. But the, Le Mans is Le Mans. And so many things can happen uh, in 24 hours. It's a tough, tough race on everybody. But I think we have a good shot, and, uh, but we won't know until we get there. And, and talking about tough races, um, your team car again. We always say when we're doing the yeah. play-by-play that Corvette Racing turns out to nigh-on-identical cars. In qualifying in every practice session, there was hardly a tenth between you most times. But yeah. the four-car, once again, had a bit of bad luck. Did we get to the bottom of what happened? We saw Tony Garcia had to pull the car over, reboot it, and then Ollie who I haven't seen drive off the circuit for I can't tell you how many years, Oli Gavin had two offs at the same place, the second one putting the car out of the race effectively. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, the uh, it was uh, the three cars didn't have any issues. Uh, the, uh, the car pulling over to restart again, there was also the four car that had the issue with, uh, with the belts. Excuse me, so it was, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. But... Um, uh, the course of what happened to Ollie's car, I'm not 100% sure. I know they found something with a spring on a return spring on the brake pedal that might have uh, caught some of it, but I haven't uh, had the final report on uh, on what actually happened, but uh, those guys are doing some, some good luck. I mean, they've, they've had all of last year. Uh, so many little things go wrong, uh, completely out of their hands, uh, and they are uh, absolutely winners, both of them, Tommy and, and Ollie. Um, they just need 
I don't know if they need good luck, but just don't need any bad luck. <laughs> that's right. Well, <laughs> two for two at the moment, and that's, of course, a great start to a championship season in North America in the Tudor United Sports Car Championship on two very different circuits. The next event is at Long Beach, so we will have had the, the high banks of Daytona, the bumpiness of Sebring, and then a short race, just two hours and 40 minutes, uh, sorry, just an hour and 40 minutes, on the streets yeah, on the streets of Long Beach. So th- this, is, this is a very varied opening to the season. Is there much you can do to change the, the car to get onto the streets of, of Long Beach, or do you just basically go there and drive the wheels off it? Uh, yes, go there, drive the wheels off it. <laughs> There's, uh, there's small stuff that they do to prepare the cars for short sprint races uh, uh, as opposed to a 24-hour race, but it's, it's, it, there are no huge things. Uh, obviously, we'll set it up with the maximum amount of downforce that we can have uh, as it is a really, really tight place. Um, but it's a fantastic place also. It's one of my favorite street circuits. Uh, it has a really, really good flow to it and then uh, just that special feeling about you know, racing between the walls uh, makes you feel like you're going really fast. <laughs> well, you are going really fast as well. <laughs> it just makes you feel like you, you're going very fast to me and mortals like us. Jan, Jan, thanks very much for joining us and uh, good Thank luck. Uh, good luck for the rest of the season. It's been a fantastic start for you uh, and the rest of the Chevy team. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jan Magnussen speaking to me earlier in the week and rightly very pleased Marshall Pruitt of Racer.com who is still with me about the back-to-back victories in Tudor United Sports Car Championship which just happened to be two of the biggest races uh, in the world. And if he could, with his teammates, do the trifecta, the triple crown, if you will, of endurance racing for Corvette this year, that would be something astounding. Absolutely. I mean... (laughs) You look at a guy like Briscoe, who, who uh, you know, around Christmas time wasn't exactly sure what he'd be doing, and uh, all of a sudden the guy sprayed more champagne in uh, the first two, you know, first two rounds of the year than he normally would for an entire season in an <laughs> IndyCar, just because it's so competitive there. So good on him. He's got Le Mans on the horizon. It's also, I mean, granted, it would not be. Uh, you know, we have to be honest in saying that if not for some bizarre problems late in the race uh we would likely be talking about a uh, porsche 13 on the podium with the corvette uh, in the middle of that sandwich uh, granted you do have to get through all 12 hours before mm. they start handing out the hardware so uh no you know nothing to discount what uh, the corvette racing team achieved they were there to capitalize uh but it definitely i think heindy showed us that uh, in higher downforce trim, since that's going to be a lot out of the tracks we're going to go to for the rest of the season, it looks like we should have a stonking battle oh. between uh, Porsche and Corvette, and that's why we go to endurance races, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think Porsche will have the uh, the same issues again. There'll be some harsh questions asked both uh, in uh, motorsport in North America and back at Vysak. Let's... Use the rest of the time wisely. It's St. Pete's this weekend, which is a brilliant way to kick off any season. And it's the uh, IndyCar season opener. A road track that really is, a street track, should I say, that really is like no other. Got a great rhythm to part of it. It's got that long front straight that's the airport runway. It's got a fantastic party atmosphere. And we go into a season with a lot of hope, a lot of expectation and a lot of positivity, Marshall. I know. What is wrong? There's something wrong, Heidi. <laughs> IndyCar is not completely being destroyed by the experts on the interweb. Uh, yeah, I mean, hey, 
there's something new to talk about. Uh, Aero kits now are cars the that most, look different. Shocker. Yes, are they the most pleasing things that have uh, run across our eyes? No, because we've seen uh, indie cars from, I mean, heck, from 1911 on. So I would say that yes, to those that have criticisms of their physical appearance in 2015. I might share some of your uh, share some of your aesthetic concerns, but uh, even if, if the cars are not as as beautiful as they could be, ultimately we're here to watch the best drivers battle each other, engineers, manufacturers. Mm. This is a uh, this is a test on many levels, not just will the prettiest car win. So I go into the season, Heidi, uh, with my engineering back- background, just wanting to look at and understand every little aspect and. I hope that's probably one of the big things I'm hoping to come out of this season, which is it's been a long time since fans have had a reason to know or care about the technical side. Yep. Uh, I don't know how much re-education is needed, but uh, hopefully folks can follow along and get interested. Uh, and we expect to see track records uh, be broken because the cars have got way more downforce. Okay, that's going to make them a bit more draggy as well. They'll produce the lap times in different ways, but I'm looking forward to it. The question is... The question I ask you at this time every year is who's going to win it? The big teams are all still there. Some of them have been slightly reconstituted. The big names are all still there. In fact, in some ways, I think we've got the best field of drivers in IndyCar, in depth at least, that that we've had for some time. But surely the championship contenders and the Indy 500 contenders are going to be the guys that we know already. It's not going to be a massive shock, is it? Don't believe so. Uh, at least at this stage of the game, uh, I'd say you can put your money on one of three drivers. The two perennials, well, one's been a perennial, but he finally made the breakthrough yes. last year, Will Power. Um, the other at genuine perennial is Scott Dixon. Uh Dixie and Power have been essentially one-two uh, almost everywhere they've gone to test, uh, either together as part of the Chevy camp at Barber during spring training. The other one I would throw into the mix and think that uh, I don't know if twenty fifth if he's ready in 2015 just because of the new surroundings or if 2015 will be the key to help him break through, and that is Monsieur Simon Pagenaud. Mm. Uh, I'll tell you. That guy has not only been rocket fast, but he fits that team. Uh, He he has been working. uh, One of my old bosses, and I'm sure plenty have heard this, uh, told me, you know, uh, do not do the job that you're doing. If you want to progress, don't do the job you're doing now. Do the job of the next place you want to be, the next role, the next destination. That's what Simon's been doing for the past couple of years. You could basically say uh, auditioning uh, to become part of Roger Penske's uh, IndyCar program, and that's what has happened. And uh, in that team, early season and leading right up to uh, the beginning of practice in two days uh, at St. Petersburg, Simon looks like a guy who is ready to knock down every wall in front of him (laughs) to get to that championship. The only problem is his teammate, his current teammate, which was his former teammate in champ car, Will Power, uh, that guy finally uh, figured out how to become a champion. And then on the Ganassi side, uh, they've been a little bit of a, I don't know if I want to say disarray, but for what we expect from Ganassi, 2014 was definitely a down year. But I'll tell you, Scott Dixon, who has a new engineer this year, uh, a bit of a uh, surprise after, I think, 13 years mm-hmm. with Eric Bretzman. Uh, Dixie's going to have a little bit of, of newness, per se, to deal with. But 
tell you, between a Frenchman, a Kiwi, and an Aussie, uh, I think uh, IndyCar fans are going to see three of the supreme Hunter killers go after a championship should be decided between one of the three of them. If if those three are going to be the championship contenders, there will be times then when they're looking much more at grabbing the points than perhaps getting the spot in victory lane. That might be the opportunity for someone else further down the field to come through. Who's the most likely then to be challenging those three and not necessarily be challenging those three for championship, Marshall, but at least to get the odd race win here or there? Because we've seen that happen in the last few years in IndyCar and I think that's a breath of fresh air actually when someone else pops up in a championship such as that and gets a victory, whether it's you know Justin Wilson a few years ago or one of the guys from last year popping up and, and jumping into the podium spots. Absolutely. Keep in mind the three that I just mentioned, those are all Chevy-powered drivers. Yeah. And for everything we have seen preseason and all of the, uh, um, you know, uh, far end of the tent, away from sight conversations that I've had with drivers, owners, engineers and such, there's a pretty strong belief that our friends at Honda are uh, scrambling to understand every single aspect or every last aspect of their aero kit, uh, whereas uh, our friends at Chevy uh, looks like they are coming in fully studied, fully prepared, and uh, better able to be executing at 100% right away. I think not only is that going to play out championship-wise, but I think that's going to play out in this case, Heidi, of who's going to be able to sneak in, who's going to get some of the, exactly. those odd, odd wins here or there. I think that's also going to factor in. So. If I'm looking uh, among the rest of the Chevy runners, uh, well, frankly, Chevy has uh, all four Penske cars, has between three and four Ganassi cars, depending on how many events uh, Sage Karam will be in the car, Mm. and also has uh, two cars from Carpenter, Fisher, Hartman Racing, and has two from KVSH. So I would say on top of, uh, frankly, all four Ganassi driver, I'm sorry, all four Penske drivers, Elio Castroneves, Juan Montoya, all four Penske drivers should win at least one race this year. We know some of them are going to win more. If we look at Ganassi, uh, we, you can definitely count Dixon in for some wins. Canon probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, will Charlie Kimball? It'll be interesting. Our friend Dario Franchitti, uh, Chip has essentially tasked him primarily with Charlie this year as the driver to coach Mm. and work with. He works with all the drivers, but mind you, Charlie is really the one where they're wanting to say, hey, give him everything you got. Let's let's take as much of a leap as we can with Charlie. Uh, Sage, depending on how many races we get with him, that little crazy SOB, um, you don't want to count him out at all because that kid has future champion potential. You move over to KV, Bourdais, he yeah. is in a really happy place. He's back with his uh, engineer, Olivier Boisson, who is one of the best and most underrated in the paddock. And Stefano Coletti, I'll tell you, that kid right there, uh, he might be a in, an IndyCar rookie, uh, but I would be very surprised if we got out of 2015 without that kid putting up at least one win. Wow. Um, then if you move over to uh, the final Chevy team, you have Luca Filippi and Ed Carpenter sharing the number 20 entry. Ed would be very surprised if he doesn't pick up a win on an oval. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Filippi's ready to win this year. Um, I'm not, yeah, that I'm definitely not sure about. Uh, 
Joseph Newgarden, who looked like he was ready to win more than once last year while using a Honda, now has a Chevy and a teammate to work with. So Joseph's another one that uh, I think could win. And the thing is, I think at Hindy, IndyCar might actually need to hold more races because for everybody that should win, I don't know if there's enough races left. But honestly... And you haven't barring, talked about the Hondas yet. Not at all. So barring something strange, I do think our, our friends at Chevy are going to put up a heck of a lot of wins this year. Not saying uh, Honda won't, but at least at this stage, we're you know two days away from the seat, first official practice session. You go off of what you've seen. There's been no sandbagging. There's been no time to sandbag because everyone's got their arrow kits just three weeks before the start of the season. We've seen everything they have to offer uh, on the Honda side, and uh, I know that based on that, they're definitely questions on the Chevy side I don't think they've shown everything because traditionally they don't they show up to St. Pete with some extra power that really scares people so quickly on the Honda side yep. Hindy Hinchcliffe with a new team yep. with the incredibly sharp Alan McDonald uh, he huh. should be he should get back to uh, victory circle this year for at least one race uh, looking at the Andretti team very strange they have been the official and only team to conduct aero kit testing on behalf of, uh, of Honda. They're, they are the ones chosen in Ready Autosport. Test this aero kit, develop it, then we'll distribute it. Uh, they've been off. They have not, you would think the ones with the most experience would be a solid one, two, three, four among the Honda contingent, but they haven't. Ryan Hunter Ray has been quick at times. Takuma Sato at AJ Foyt uh, Racing has been very quick at times. Graham Rahal, I would say, has probably been the fastest and most cons- the most consistently fast Honda driver, single car team of all the Honda runners. So Graham's another one who, uh, if he doesn't win a race this year, I mean, that's going to be a bit calamitous if you ask me because they have overhauled that entire program. They're really happy with where they're at. Everyone's gelling, working well. Uh, that's a team that should win one race, at least. Hunter Ray should, because he's Hunter Ray. Um, beyond that, not you know, you've got a rookie and Gabby Chavez and a one-car Brian Herta team. That kid's got silly amounts of talent, but is a rookie in a small team. Uh, Dale Coyne Racing, we can discount them completely. Uh, barring something strange, Carlos Huertas, who did win a race last year in fortuitous conditions, He's not ready to go head-to-head with anybody at any point in time. The other car, which I think is going to be a bit of a spin the wheel of who's in it this weekend, this weekend, can't really say about that. So, unfortunately, Heindy, if we're just talking on the Honda side, you've got A.J. Foyt, Sato's going to be quick. They also have Jack Hawksworth, who's there this year. And I think Jack could surprise folks. Um, it's, certain, you know, it's only his second year, and he's moved to a new team. How long will that take for him to settle? Uh, Andretti Autosport, Mark. Marco Andretti, always a threat on ovals. Carlos Munoz, how good can he be? Not sure. Simona Di Silvestro could be in for some races. Questions on the Honda side, Heidi. Very few on Chevy. So if you're a fan of the bow tie um, and you're a betting person... Put your money uh, on now. I just told you where to put it. Um, you're going to be in a very privileged position this year because we're going to do our proper... Uh, rundown of the season or preview of the season um, after the first race so we'll have a little bit of form to go on when we next talk uh, Marshall Pro, brilliant stuff enjoy St Pete I know you will I'm very envious uh, but in fairness Paul Ricard's uh, not a bad second for that which is where no, I'm going to not at all Heidi and I'm going to get the uh, Indy Lights season opener as well plus Pirelli World Challenge madness so I, I Trust me, I wish I could be at the prologue, but I'm not going to be too upset about it. 
It's Marshall Pruitt from Racer.com joining us uh, tonight on Midweek Motorsport, and that's about it. We'll try and get back to something approaching normal this week. My thanks to uh, Nick Damon and Graham Goodwin, the responsible adult as ever, was Eve Hewitt, and to Marshall Pruitt who joined us, and to uh, Jan Magnussen for giving his time earlier uh, in the week. There's uh, no more time for me, though. We've got to uh, head out. I've got to jump in the mighty Jeep Cherokee and uh, head south first thing in the morning and we'll be reporting from the WEC Prologue uh, throughout uh, Friday and Saturday. So we'll look out for some special programmes. In the meantime, there's no time to explain. The Llama is... Ooh, la la. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.